Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. It should come as no surprise that Nick Rolovich wants a pound of flesh and maybe $25 million to go with it. Former Washington State football coach was a big story a year ago and really caused a distraction at Washington State that. I don't think we gave Jake Dickard and the players at Washington State enough credit for overcoming. Rolovich has filed a claim seeking $25 million for wrongful termination after he refused to get vaccinated for COVID-19. He has uh, filed the claim on behalf of the state's Office of Risk Management. That is a prerequisite for filing a lawsuit against a state agency in the state of Washington. No suit has been filed as of today, but Rolovich's attorney um, is going to claim that he was denied a religious exemption from the governor in the state of Washington. He was fired in October after he had coached just 11 games over two seasons. Now, the Pac-12 conference may have a role to play in this. Remember, first and foremost, Pat Chun, the athletic director at Washington State, came forth and and basically said, look, he's relieved of his duties. But before all that, let's get to what Nick Rolovich said in the days before he was fired by Washington State a year ago. Just a refresher here. Here's an exchange that Nick Rolovich had with a reporter for King 5 TV in Seattle. Uh, just days before he was relieved of his duties. Have you received your shot or have you scheduled your shot? Yeah, I'm not going to talk about that, Chris. Uh, I understand what you, what you guys are trying to get to, but... Uh, are you seeking a, a religious or medical exemption? I'm not going to talk about that, that either, Chris. What's been your hesitation with talking about it more forthcoming? Um, I don't know that it's... Um, all that positive to get deep into it with the media, um, the way it's going. So I'm just going to try to keep that to myself and concentrate on being a coach here. But I think you can understand that you're the highest paid state employee and that there are fans, teachers, and students that are upset about your stance on this and your lack of insight about why you haven't said that you've received the shot or not. How do you, how do you answer those people that are upset about your stance on this? Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know what else to say here. Nick Rolovich on October 11th was relieved of his duties. Uh, We broke the news right here on this radio show. We're the first to have it. But here was Pat Chun, the athletic director at Washington State. Today, Nick Rolovich was formally notified by the university that he has failed to meet the requirements as stated in the state of Washington, Governor Inslee's Proclamation 21-14-1 related to vaccination requirements. The non-compliance with this requirement renders him ineligible to be employed at Washington State University and therefore can no longer fulfill the duties as a head coach of our football program effective immediately. 
The separation process has been initiated in accordance with the terms as specified in his contract. It is disheartening to be here today. Our football team is hurting. Our WSU community is fractured. Today will have a lasting impact on the young men on our team and the remaining coaches and staff. As a director of athletics and steward of this department, I take full ownership and responsibility for hiring Nick. In January of 2020, based on all the information we had at the time, including extensive references and conversations with knowledgeable football experts, we believe we found the perfect fit and a long-term solution for Washington State football. Unfortunately, we stand here today having to make a transition. Earlier this evening, I met with our football team and the remaining coaches and staff to notify them directly of Nick's noncompliance with the governor's proclamation. To be at this juncture today is unacceptable on so many levels and is antithetical to the WSU experience our student athletes so richly deserve. I'm saddened for our football alumni and to all the proud Cougs all over the world for the fracturing that has transpired over the past few months. It was a divisive decision. It was a disruptive move by Nick Rolovich to not follow Governor Inslee's proclamation for state employees. He was the highest paid state employee in the state of Washington, and Nick Rolovich, uh, for reasons that he never really explained, did not get vaccinated. Uh, he was relieved of his duties. Washington State went 4-2 and two in the regular season without him. I think you have to stop just for a second here, and you have to recognize, like, look, he's going to file this lawsuit. We all expected he would file a lawsuit. He had three years remaining on a contract that paid him about $3.5 million a year. He is suing for $25 million. Uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's entitled to sue for whatever he wants to sue for. We'll see what happens with this case. I'm fascinated by it, but I also think we need to step back a little bit, and we need to recognize that Jake Dickert and the Washington State football team did a hell of a job down the stretch. Amid all of this distraction, they go out the game after this happens – they're playing, you know, obviously, uh, you know, a conference schedule. They're playing Stanford the week after it happens. It's family weekend, and they beat Stanford 34-31. They lose a close one the following week against BYU 21-19. And then they win three of the next four, including the Apple Cup, to finish the season. They came close uh, to competing and contending for the North Division Championship, In fact, if Oregon State had beat Oregon in that uh, rivalry game to finish the year, Washington State would have been your North Division champion, and they would have advanced to Las Vegas to play against Utah. But I think you have to, first of all, look at Jake Dickert, who took over as interim coach and then became the permanent coach at Washington State. And you have to say that was a hell of a job that he did in the wake of a huge distraction. You also have to ask, like, will the Pac-12 conference – play a role in this lawsuit. Of course, he's going to sue uh, Washington State, uh, but George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, at the time on this show, came on this show to talk about the Nick Rolovich situation. Here's what Klyovkov said. I've stayed out of that because that's none of our business. That's between Washington State and its employee. And I, I, I think from the outside looking in, not speaking for the conference, speaking personally, it, it looked like a well-managed fair, blind kind of process uh, where they came to the conclusion they came to. Uh, I would say, again, um, having nothing to do with that situation, but speaking more broadly, uh, I believe in science. Uh, I believe in the vaccine and the efficacy of the vaccines. Um, I believe the quicker we get a larger percentage of our population vaccinated, the quicker we get to all stop wearing masks and get to sit next to each other 
shoulder to shoulder in our arenas and stadiums and other venues and enjoy college sports. So I'm, I'm, I'm all in for getting folks vaccinated. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. Um, you know, Nick Rolovich, I actually think with, in the case of Rolovich, he's a very combative individual. We have seen him have issues with coaching staffs. He obviously had issues with Oregon State. There was a big spat that went on with the Beavers. He, there have been cases where, you know, he has yelled across the field and had issues. He's kind of a fiery guy by his nature. I brought him on the show uh, right after he was hired, and I was kind of rubbed the wrong way by the by the tone that he struck on this show, even in the beginning. But, you know, I don't need to like all of these coaches. And, in fact, I think he was a great offensive coach at Washington State, but I think if he would have had the vaccine, he'd still be the coach at Washington State. And the state law there, uh, you know, Governor Inslee uh, essentially put out a mandate saying, you know, it, you are going to be fired if you don't, uh, if you don't follow this mandate, and he didn't file, he didn't follow it, and I think he put Pat Chun, the AD who hired him, in a tremendously uh, uh, awful position because it was Chun just a year earlier who was essentially vouching for Rolovich, saying, "Look, we scoured planet Earth, we found the perfect guy, we found the guy who's going to lead our football program." And look, I don't know where you stand, and I don't think it even matters where you stand here or there, vaccine, non-vaccine, whatever. I just think you look at a state employee who was asked to, um, you know, follow the mandate like every other teacher and state employee in the state of Washington. And Nick Rolovich certainly wasn't alone uh, among those employees that uh, were fired because uh, they failed to get vaccinated. So I think it's going to be fascinating. We talked about it at the time that Rolovich would sue. I don't know if Washington State is going to settle. I don't know if Washington State is going to take this to the mattresses. But I know that it will continue to be a distraction at Washington State until it is over and done. And I thought last year they handled it very well. And I'll be curious to see if it provides to be any more destructive or divisive than it has in the past. But Nick Rolovich filing that lawsuit seeking $25 million dollars after he was denied a religious exemption last year and fired 11 games into his tenure. He is moving forward with a lawsuit, uh, and uh, this will be interesting to see how this comes down. we got a great show for you today. I'm going to talk to you coming up about the business of consulting. The consulting world in college athletics and pro athletics is a lucrative business. Um, you know, I, th- I get why consultants are necessary. I understand why they're part of the game and the landscape. I get the expertise and the back-channeling and the fact that you can rent expertise in a, in a scenario that helps you. But I think sometimes it goes too far. I think often it goes too far. It, you know, we can talk all we want about these media rights negotiations and we can talk about realignment and expansion Uh, you know, how dicey it is for some of these conferences, including the Pac-12. But you know who's getting rich when it happens? The consultants are. We'll talk about that coming up. you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Nick Rolovich in the lawsuit, $25 million he's seeking, wrongful termination. He had three years at $3.2 million left on the deal, about $9.6 million he was owed by Washington State. 
I want to talk about consultants coming up. Uh, I'm going to take a couple phone calls. Roy in Portland has called in. Wants to talk about Nick Rolovich. Go ahead, Roy. Hey, John. Hey, John. Last year, I called in about this topic when all this was going on. Yep. And I said, I said, be careful. I said the courts hadn't ruled it at that time. I said, be careful. I said, once the courts rule and they come back as unconstitutional, all this stuff the states and everybody doing, I said, you're going to be in big trouble. And I guess Kleofskoff was thinking the same thing I was thinking. That's why he threw it back on Washington and said, no, nah, the big two, we're not going to – he's, he's been in business. He can see what could possibly could have happened. You know what I mean? Like, well, he, he's probably thinking, like, well, what if the courts come back like I'm thinking and say all this stuff we'd be doing unconstitutional uh, – We've been doing this unconstitutional, and now we're on the hook for a wrongful termination lawsuit. So that he was very smart in that. Kleofkoff was very smart. He was reading what was could possibly be ahead. Everybody was so in the in the mixed up in the hoopla. Oh yeah, you can just step over somebody's religious exemption rights, and it's a pandemic. We no, you can't. You cannot step over on people's constitutional rights, and the court said that. Now he's going to win his lawsuit. This should be a lesson to be learned. This is a lesson to be learned for everybody. No matter how much, uh, whatever's going on, people still have constitutional rights, man. And you just can't trample over those for the sake of anything. And and like I said, that's what the courts told you. And now you're going to owe them $25 million. You know, so yeah, we'll it, it is what we'll it is. See. We'll see. Hey, I got another question for you. Uh, Georgia, Oregon, I know you're a big Georgia hunk. Is there any question in your mind that George is going to play well in that opener? Is there any kind of inkling like, hey, yeah, a lot of young guys, week one, I'm I'm not picking Oregon to win this game, but Roy, I'm leaning towards Oregon plus 18 as being the play. Uh, I, I don't know, man. You know, I've been looking at this game and I just, I, I'm going to be honest, man. I don't trust Bo Nix, man. <laughs> you, know, you know, I don't trust him. I don't trust him as a quarterback. He doesn't do well against Georgia, and uh, and it's and it's Lanning's first game. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, it's they're gonna have the same defensive concept, regardless of Lanning not being there. I, I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it could be close, but I don't know. I'm going two touchdown uh, Georgia, two touchdown win, okay. fourteen points. Okay, that feels about right to me. I I, I think it's I think it's gonna be closer than eighteen. Roy agrees with that. I think Washington State could have played this Rolovich thing a little differently. Keep in mind, he started the season one and three. Got beat by USC, got beat by Utah, got beat by Utah State in the opener. Washington State could have fired Nick Rolovich for his on-field performance. They waited instead to see if he was going to get vaccinated. And it was about uh, two weeks after he lost to Utah that they let him go and cited the reasons of, hey, he didn't follow uh, you know, the governor's mandate. You heard Pat Chun, the athletic director, say that. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what a court says and what a uh, – what a uh, you know, he's again, he's suing a state agency in the state of Washington. So it will be interesting to see that. And then, you know, oh, by the way – you know, if they had fired him for football cause, they still would have had to pay him the $9.6 million that they owed him. He is now suing for $25 million. We'll see how that goes. I want to turn the focus to consulting. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. My 8-year-old came into the room this morning while I was writing, and she said, what are you writing about, Dad? 
And often I'll tell her I'm writing about the ducks or I'm writing about the beavers or I'm writing about, you know, uh, the wildcats or whatever. And she'll go, um, oh, that's cool. But I said to her today, I said, I'm writing about something that that is not really involved with sports, but it is involved in sports. And she looked at me a little confused. And I think a lot of people are confused when it comes to the idea of consulting firms and what they do in sports. So I wrote today about how, kind, how absurd it gets at different times with these consulting firms. And there's a whole bunch of firms that are involved in realignment, involved in these media rights deals, and other things. Crisis management, PR. I spend way too much time talking to people who are working for consulting firms. Now, in 2018, four years ago, the Pac-12 conference hired a crisis management team. Remember, they were in trouble in the wake of that instant replay fiasco that Larry Scott, you know, was was busy busy bumbling, and he was uh, he was basically saying, you know, I, I I didn't know what happened, or I'm not sure what happened, and I don't I don't know if uh, if uh, you know we have an instant replay manual, and it turns out he said no, we don't have a manual, and then I produced the manual. Uh, one of the employees in the replay center sent me the manual and go, yes, we do have one. Larry doesn't even know that we have a manual, but Larry Scott um, at the time was in real trouble. And it was a PR issue, and it was a crisis management issue, and I think the conference was well aware of it. I remember Larry Scott coming on this show, and he had a rough time of it on this show because he was, uh, you know, he was essentially trying to say that they had messed up the instant replay thing, but he didn't want to say how they messed it up. And here is uh, here is uh, Larry Scott uh, talking about the instant replay issue um, and, and the fiasco that happened in 2018. I want to make these immediate steps now, um, and I want to take more time to talk to our members, talk to our football coaches, talk to other leaders nationally about what's, what's best in class, what's best practice. So I can't tell you exactly whether there will be other longer-term changes or not, but I feel like this is the most significant step I can make now to acknowledge that um, – uh, we made a mistake in allowing this situation uh, to develop, to allowing any shred of uh, concern about uh, integrity or ambiguity. And I feel like it's my responsibility to make uh, the most significant change I can make right now uh, to lift any cloud that might exist, even for the next games that we play starting Friday night. He talked about the integrity concerns that the conference had. Of course, people were wondering, can you trust the officiating? Here was Larry Scott. I want to make these immediate steps now, um, and I want to take more time to talk to our members, talk to our football coaches, talk to other leaders nationally about what's, what's best in class. Best practices, best practices. He kept saying that over and over again. Uh, finally, on this show, I told him I don't think people trust him. And, and here's, the, here's the worst part for you. I don't think they trust you when you say, hey, this was an isolated incident or we've looked into it. I don't think anyone trusts you. Larry Scott said that was an overstatement. He then hired a public relations firm, Fleischman Hillard, who had previously worked with Chevrolet, Levi's, USA Gymnastics when they were going through that sex abuse crisis. They paid $150,000 to this PR firm to give them a 34-page manual on how to handle themselves amid the crisis. It struck me at the time, look, I don't know if you could have used an extra 150 or if you know somebody in the PR world, but it struck me at the time that it was a lot of common sense. 
it was basically uh, you know, knowing what's going on, being able to relay to people accurate information, not speaking without knowing uh, whether or not you have a replay, uh, you know, a replay system in place. Uh, he also turned to a Texas-based consulting firm called PulsePoint. He paid them $250,000 to come in and do work with the Pac-12 staff. So we're talking about $400,000 that they spent in 2018 with two different consulting firms. Now, uh, Larry Scott's not the only Pac-12 commissioner that has done this. George Klyovkov hired a firm in July called Sports Media Advisors to help guide the Pac-12 on these media rights negotiations. So they're paying sporty, sports media advisors. And then a second firm called Navigate, based in Chicago, is also working with one of the other major college conferences. I suspect it's the SEC or the Big 12. It's not the Big 10, but I know that they are under contract. They told me they couldn't talk to me because they are under contract with one of the major conferences. It's not the Pac-12. It's not the Big 10. So, um, you know, I was reading Sports Business Journal today, and they talked about a firm called Endeavor that the Pac-12 hired a year ago to, and paid the Pac. They paid to help the Pac-12 explore potential conference expansion options. Uh, Endeavor worked with the Pac-12, evaluated a couple dozen potential targets, and then the Pac-12 ultimately decided to stand pat in part because Carol Folt, the USC president, said, hey, we shouldn't be thinking about expanding. We should be focused on ourselves, as she had one foot out the door. Now the Big 12 is going through a similar exercise, and its media consultants uh, are, are Endeavor. It's the same people that the Pac-12 hired a year ago. So Endeavor is, you know, went to work for the Pac-12, then a year later goes to work for the Big 12. Same firm, same consultants, same mission, brand new paycheck. They're renting the same consultants. It's interesting to me. It's also not the first time this has happened. Several months ago, the Big 12 conference hired Turnkey. It's a search firm, and they paid them six figures to help conduct the search that led them to hire Brent Yormark, their new conference commissioner. Cool. Turnkey got the, got the payday. They found Brent Yormark, and all of a sudden, the Big 12's got a commissioner. It's the same firm that helped hire George Klyovkov. It's really interesting that these same firms tend to surface again and again in the major college conferences. I, I find it amusing. The search firms didn't like that I wrote about it this morning. I heard from two of them who said, hey, uh, you don't understand. We're a necessary part of this process. Uh, the, the conferences don't have in-house firms that are uh, available to help them consult with conference expansion and other things. That's not totally true. The Big Ten does a lot of that in-house. But it's just amusing to me, and also it, it's very expensive for the conferences. And, and it's not just the major conferences either. Collegiate sports consulting billed Portland State $3,500 a month over nine months in last year and published a 400-page analysis of the, of the athletic department. They looked at the football program, they looked at the basketball program, they looked at the stadium. They, that this 400-page analysis was exhaustive. I mean, it is the Bible on Portland State. And then Portland State turned around and hired a second firm, Collegiate Sports Associates, to conduct their search for their new athletic director. They were charged $30,000 for that. So it was like $61,500 that Portland State paid to consulting firms to basically told, tell them what you and I could have told them, 
Now the new AD at Portland State, John Johnson, has uh, been asked by his university president to come up with a strategic plan. So guess what Johnson is doing? I'm told he has now hired a group of consultants to help with his analysis. It's just amazing to me that this cycles over and over and over again, and it seems to go nowhere. Uh, hey, if you're a consultant, good for you. You're getting paid. But it feels like the conferences themselves should be doing a better job, and the universities themselves should do, be doing a better job just doing business. I want you to leave it here. Punch and Audio is coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Program Tom Wistersill, the commissioner of the Big Sky Conference, will be with us. Also efforting Nick Aliotti, the former Oregon defensive coordinator and the analyst of the Pac-12 Network. I think he's the most fun on the Pac-12 Network. He'll be joining us uh, as soon as he uh, gets his calendar straight. Uh, we have some funny moments uh, from a Yankees broadcast. We also have a back and forth between a journalist and a golfer. Plus Dan Lanning talking about Bo Nix and Roger Goodell talking Deshaun Watson, among other things. It's all part of Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, there's a quarterback race in Eugene. At least that's how they're setting it up. But it felt to me all along that Bo Nix would be the starter. Dan Lanning, Oregon first-year head coach, talking about Bo Nix. Punch it. Yeah, I think it just shown up. You know, I think Bo's earned the respect of a lot of the players on the team with the way that he operates, but I think you'll see that throughout our quarterback room. You know, Ty, Jay, all those guys have really carried on. And I think Bo, you know, Bo's sat in that seat before, so he knows what it looks like. He's done a good job of carrying that through the entire offense. Bo Nix, Ty Thompson, Jay Butterfield. If you're handicapping the field, that's probably how it falls. One, two, three. Keep an eye on Butterfield to possibly jump in the portal if he does end up as the number three. I think he's talented enough to play somewhere. But I think it's interesting that uh, Oregon is willing to say nice things about all their quarterbacks. They're playing a game that everybody's playing. What will you get out of Bo Nix? That's the big question for Oregon. I like his game experience. We have all seen him play against Oregon. We'll see him in an Oregon uniform, very likely in that season opener on September the 3rd in Atlanta against the defending national champion, Georgia Bulldogs. Caleb Williams. Depending on who you asked, he's either the greatest thing or he's overhyped. ESPN's George Whitfield Jr. believes that Caleb Williams walks on water. Punch it. His, his generational talent combined with his confidence and his swag if I was going to wrap this for you guys, imagine imagine Kendrick Lamar and Aaron Rodgers both enter into a phone booth. It's Caleb Williams who walks out the other side. <laughs> he is, I've been around him in high school. I've been around him just at Elite 11 a couple of weeks ago. Every time he picks up a football, you're like, I didn't know a football could do that. I didn't know a person could do that with a football. The interesting part to his transformation, though, in talking to him is two things. One, 
he is now leading from the front. It's, it's a lot of fun when you're in the bullpen and you're getting a chance to hear the crowd and everybody cheer and anticipate you coming in. And it's something to pick up the ball at the Texas game and then take it over. But he didn't have a chance to lead from the front because he wasn't the starter last year. He came in midway, took it over, ran it. Now he's got to gel all these free agents that USC has acquired and take off with those guys. Secondarily, um, can he Mac Jones the ball downfield? And Greg and Andre, Christine, you guys have watched him. He's a home run hitter. I'm a big play guy. But can you methodically 12, 15 plays, do the boring, uh, drive them down the field, clock possession, check downs? Do you have that in your arsenal? That'll be something he'll have to kind of build and add with that home run prowess. But this is the biggest monster in college football. Generational talent. That term gets thrown around. And to me, it means you dominate an era. Caleb Williams hasn't dominated an era yet. Let's cool it on the generational talent stuff. If he's great, he's going to be great on the field. But my questions for Caleb Williams are in only two spots. One of them is accuracy. We know he can run. We know he has a strong arm. There just have been some spots where he hasn't been accurate. And, you know, he's got seven regular season starts. He's five and two. He is 1-2 and two against ranked teams in his career as a starter. He looked really good against Oregon in the bowl game, but it was an Oregon team with no Kayvon Thibodeau, and, you know, Oregon had one foot out the door. Caleb Williams' second area that I'm really paying attention to is just, it, it's the leadership gene. Can he help create an amalgam of talent at USC, or is he going to be a guy more interested in his NFL career, his NIL deals. He told me on Pac-12 Media Day that he fashioned himself kind of like uh, a Patrick Mahomes. That's great, but you shouldn't be calling yourself Patrick Mahomes. We'll see if Caleb Williams can play, especially over an extended period of time. And here's the bigger question for USC. Like, great skill positions, but will they be able to stop opposing rushing attacks? Will they be able to run the ball on anybody? Those are big questions for a football team. ESPN lined up to possibly give the Pac-12 Conference a windfall in this media rights uh, deal. Josh Pate talking about the Pac-12 and ESPN here. Punch it. Hey, a lot of folks are going to bid on the Big Ten. Someone's not going to land it. That money's still going to be in their lap. And then it's, it's like you go to the grocery store and you, you, you go to the car lot and you planned on spending on a car and they're all out and you're just sitting there with all that money. What are we going to do with it? A responsible person would just go invest it, put it back in the bank. We're not responsible people, so we've got to spend it somewhere. Oh, and by the way, your wife has demanded that you come home with groceries, that you come home with a car, and it's the same way here. Whoever it is, if it's ESPN, if it's whoever it is, they got to have stuff to put on that shelf, namely live college football. And there is not an endless supply. Scarcity has entered the chat, and scarcity is suggesting that you better go... I'm going to stop Josh Pate right there because, look, I think he's, he's rambling about a topic that's very simple. I think he's complicating a simple topic. ESPN had money to spend. What they didn't anticipate was that NBC was going to try to create Saturday night college football in America the way that they had with Sunday night football uh, for years on NBC. So NBC has entered the chat room 
CBS is trying to replace what they lost with the SEC. And so there wasn't a lot of room left over for ESPN. This is good for the Pac-12 because ESPN needs to spend that money, needs to invest in inventory. And the Pac-12 and the Big 12 are the only two entities really that can fulfill that college football, college basketball need. I expect the Pac-12 to get a decent deal from ESPN. I'll be curious to see if it involves a partnership with the ACC. I'll be curious to see if it involves non-conference basketball games and football games. But I think everything's on the table right now. And on yesterday's show, you know, we had Bob Thompson, the former president of Fox Sports Networks, who said if he were the Pac-12, he'd be smiling at what happened. I think uh, I think a lot of people in the Pac-12 are smiling today because I think they're feeling better about the deal that they could potentially get and the options that they have on the table. Kevin Durant gave an ultimatum. He has a $198 million contract. He's fulfilled one year of that contract. Brian Windhorst says that Kevin Durant is not playing good chess. What does he mean? Punch it. Yeah, the league, uh, Dan, the league was pretty surprised by this move by Durant. It's a little bit curious. Clearly, what he wanted was to reiterate his trade demand and to speed up the process because in recent weeks, the Nets have really not been making any progress on trade demands or on trade talks and, frankly, had been positioning themselves to, to bring Durant back. So Durant could have accomplished that short of demanding the head coach and general manager be fired in August. That demand probably hurt his position because, frankly, it's so ridiculous and preposterous at this point that it's easy for the Nets to say no to. And it also sends a message to the rest of the league out there that this is a player who is potentially going to get cheaper, not more expensive. Um, and, and so that's not what, 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 you know, what Durant wanted to accomplish. Not only that, it limited his options, guys, because now he has asked for a trade and it hasn't been granted. He has asked for the coach and general manager to be fired, and that hasn't been granted. And so now, how do you go forward and report to training camp when you've been told no? And that's the now coming drama. If you are Kevin Durant, you, 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 know, you messed up here. This was a strategy misfire. Not just by Durant, but I'm assuming his agent and whoever else is advising him thought that him coming forth would result, you know, obviously he wants out of Brooklyn, but now in order to get out of there, Brooklyn's going to have to take pennies on the dollar in value, and there are going to be a limited number of places that he can land. I still think he's going to be on Brooklyn's roster on opening night, but interesting to see the league responding. LIV Golf, Cameron Smith had a back and forth with a reporter he reportedly signed a $100 million contract with LIV and is trying to play in the PGA Tour this weekend. Here's the back and forth with Cameron Smith and a reporter punching. Cam, I have an obvious question for you. There are reports in the Telegraph that you are imminently signing with Live Golf or have signed with Live Golf. Cameron Percy earlier today said you were going, um, and yet here you are intending to play the, the playoffs. Do you care to comment? Yeah. Um, you know, my goal here is to to win the FedEx Cup playoffs, that's all I'm here for. Um, if there's something I need to say regarding the PJ Tour or Liv, it will come from Cameron Smith, not Cameron Percy. Um, I'm a man of my word, and um, whenever you guys need to know anything, um, it'll be said by me. And just following up on that, you being a man of your word, you know, the Telegraph is reporting that you've signed and are going. Would you like to say yes or no to that? 
I have no comment to that. I, uh, like I said, I'm here to play the FedEx Cup playoffs. Um, that's been my focus the last week and a half. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to win the FedEx Cup playoffs. And uh, like I said, it, it'll come from me. It won't come from Cameron Percy. In the end, it looks like Cameron Smith probably is signing with LIV Golf. Interesting back and forth there. Coming up, some funny moments in broadcasting and a cell phone on the baseball field. We'll talk about it. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We've heard lots of great broadcast calls, especially in baseball. Baseball, I think, lends itself to great play-by-play. John Sterling, for example, he comes to mind, Yankees broadcaster. It'll be a 1-1 to Stanton. And the pitch is swung on and hit high in the air to left center. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. Away oh, back in the left center field seats. A Stantonian home run. Giancarlo. No si può stoparlo. Oh, what a shot by Stanton. It's a two-run dinger. And the Yankees immediately take a 2-0 lead. Great call, right? I mean, Stephen, you like the call from John Sterling? Yeah, it was a great call. Very, uh, very clear on what happened. You know, it seems like the Yankees just took a lead right there. But Sterling also misfires sometimes, and he gets criticized for it. In fact, that was a Stanton home run that was uh, from 2020. Here he is um, earlier this season in April. Um, He misfired on this one. Here's the 1-0. Swung on, there it goes. Deep left center. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. But caught at the wall, caught by Tapia. Boy, I thought that was gone. So Stanton got close. He sent Tapia back to the wall to make the catch. And the Yankees come up just empty. That would have tied the game. So the Yankees get one run on two hits and leave one. I love how he tried to adjust there. It's gone. It's caught. (laughs) And there it is. Gone into the glove. And I like how he says, it would have tied the game. He's telling us all these hypotheticals that would have happened in this alternate universe. Do you blame him for that? I mean, I've never done play-by-play, especially for a baseball game. I feel like it would be very, very difficult. So I don't blame him. And he's been doing it for a long time, so he's bound to make mistakes. But that seems like a pretty uh, pretty big mistake to have there. <laughs> big mistake. Little, it- little, little mature to... Uh, just uh, premature to call a home run before it's gone. Yeah, there were there was a weird call yesterday. Kansas City Royals broadcast had a strange home run call. Let's hear that one. Hit pretty well to left center field again. Pollock is back oh! at the wall. Yes! If you are looking for a multi-syllable word, how about supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Boom. I, I think that one was a little over the top. Yeah, that, that had to have been like a bet, right? He, his buddy's like, "Hey, I dare you to say this." I'm there. I don't understand what it means. What did he mean? You don't remember supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? No, I know. What, I know that word, but what does it have to do with the home run? I, I think he. I think Stephen was saying he, somebody probably bet him. You can't get it. Get that into the. Uh, into the uh, deal, Mary Poppins. Yeah, like his Mary buddy Poppins. was just like his buddy just watched that movie, and he's like, "Hey, hey, can you throw supercalifragilisticexpialidocious into the broadcast?" It, it's he's the like, time of baseball season where everyone's kind of bored. Yeah, it, I guess 
if you look into like the word Mary Poppins used it in a song, and it's it, but it, it's defined as something to say when you have nothing to say. But don't shouldn't you have something to say on a home run call? You should. I mean, in theory, I think you should. That's that's his job. His job is to have something to say for a home red call. He's got. He's just. I got nothing. It's gone. Uh, another weird one that happened. Yankees broadcast again. Yeah, I rubbed up quite a few balls in my life. Sure, it was a good learning experience. <laughs> Long pause. Cough button. Cough button utilized for 18 seconds. It, that's kind of what happened in the middle of that clip, didn't it? Or well, they're both laughing. Well, we talked. We've been talking about Vin Scully and how he said he let it breathe. You know what? <laughs> Ryan Rucco was letting it breathe on that one. <laughs> he let it breathe. Uh, did you guys see the the play last night, uh, the Pirates game, where the uh, cell phone popped out of the uh, play at third base? And uh, cell phone pops out of his pocket as he's sliding into third base. Yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah. Go for it, Sean. Yeah, I think that's that's hilarious. Our athletes really playing sports now with the cell phones. Feels yeah. like we're never away from our cell phones these days. Yeah. I did the, I I did a similar thing once when I was playing City League basketball. It was right after I just got married. I was wearing my wedding ring, and it was it's just slightly too big, and so I went for a rip through with the ball, and my ring flew off. Uh, off my finger and onto the sideline. I've you know since then I've never wore it again when I played, obviously. But yeah, so I mean, a little different, but uh, kind of the same thing. Rodolfo Castro was uh, on the bases for the Pirates. He uh, slides into third base against the Diamondbacks. The cell phone pops out of his pocket. Top of the fourth inning. Um, Major League Baseball is now investigating. They say it is a uh, violation of a rule that prohibits electronic devices from being on the field or in the dugout. They are looking into the incident. Was he uh, – he just got called up from AAA. Did – you know, he says it was – he mistakenly left it in his pocket before taking the field. He says, I don't think there's any professional ball player that would ever go out there with any intentions of taking a cell phone – it's horrible that it happened to me. Obviously, it was an un, it was an unintentional mistake. He went over three with a walk. Um, was he trying to steal signs? I don't think he got on yeah. second base. Is he taking a picture? What's he doing? I, I could see why. Think about this. I could see why this could be cheating for this reason. Instead of verbal commu- or like kind of communication by you know uh, whatever kind of facial expression to steal the base. Like, what if your phone just vibrates in your back pocket? Like a coach that's hiding texts you, mm. and suddenly your phone vibrates, and that's his cue to go steal the base. Like, I could see why that's major cheating. Or did he have it at home plate? And if it vibrates, it's a breaking yeah. ball. Yeah. Otherwise, he's sitting fastball. I don't know. Major League Baseball is looking into it. I'm sure they're going to ask him for the phone. Maybe he should pull a Tom Brady. <laughs> And uh, not turn over the phone. But I thought it was the weirdest thing. And, and it came, like, okay, yesterday it was a really interesting video day. Like, you know, we, we talked about that Little League game. And, they, you know, the kid, just absolute class at home play by this kid from Oklahoma in the, in the uh, Little League Southwest final. The, you know, it was a regional final. Just that these two teams are trying to get to Williamsport. If you missed yesterday's show, um, the kid from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was at the plate, got hit in the head with a, with a pitch. Um, pretty scary moment, but he goes down to first base. The pitcher for the Texas team, uh, which was Texas East, um, was distraught, and he was having a hard time composing himself near the mound. And I love that the batter, um, 
you know, Isaiah Jarvis is his name. The batter left first base and walked over to the mound and gave the kid a hug. And I, I think it's going to be like one of the most iconic um, sports moments of the year. I think already we can say like if we're doing one shining moment at the end of this sports year, that's going to be part of it. But that happened yesterday, and then the cell phone video popping out of the guy's pocket happened yesterday. And I was like thinking to myself, like, you know, it's such a different dynamic now with sports and phones and athletes. And the coaches will tell you when the athletes get back to the locker room and they can finally pull their phone out, they all pull their phones out and they get lost in their phones, seeing who texted them, whatever. But I, I just – I don't want to see this – like, I was happy that we got to see the moment. It was kind of – I had mixed feelings about it. We, I was happy that we got to see the moment where the kid got hit by the pitch and then showed a lot of class and getting out there. I wasn't all that happy to see a cell phone, though, on the field. And then I was simultaneously going, look at the rest of us. We're, gonna, we're all going to vilify this player for having the phone in his back pocket. Look at the rest of us. We're all walking around on our devices. Everybody in a restaurant's on their device. Like, I, I don't think it's that surprising that somebody – had a phone where they were not supposed to have a phone. I think Major League Baseball is probably going to find the kid. but and, and he had just been called up from AAA to make matters worse. So I think I think there's a definite situation or an issue there. And then for Oregon fans, you might remember last year after the Washington game, Kayvon Thibodeau goes into the locker room as Mario Cristobal is saying, hey, you know, these guys are everything that's wrong with college football. And he's, he's uh, lambasting Jimmy Lake and lambasting the – Washington Huskies, and you know, little did Mario Cristobal know that Kayvon Thibodeau was rolling on that. Cristobal got mad later at the media members, myself included, who reported it. But uh, you know, I said to Cristobal, I said, like, look, your kid's on the phone going Instagram live in the locker room, like to 70,000 people. So if he's going to do that, you're going to have to live with the consequences of it. The 4 o'clock hour is coming up, one hour in the books here. Anna's going to be along. We'll talk about the Pac-12, the big questions for Oregon and Oregon State, plus, uh, you know, Bo Nix, Chance Nolan. How confident are you in the two quarterbacks that will apparently start week one for these two teams? I want you to leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. What are the big questions that Oregon and Oregon State face this college football season? How about Washington? How about Washington State? How about others? I want to talk a little bit about the Ducks and the Beavers in this segment, and I want your phone calls. What are you wondering about? What question do you want answered? at Oregon and Oregon State. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. We'll dive deep on it. Look, I think the obvious thing when you look at this season that's coming up is it's Utah and then everybody else right now in the Pac-12. It's Utah and everybody else. Everybody else has got massive questions. Utah's questions are are, uh, first world problems in college football. Like, you know, can they deal with being the front runner? That's about as complex as it gets for Utah. Can Utah deal with being a front runner? They're going to be the favorite. Can they play from the uh, lead pack? That's that's a that's a problem you like to have if you're a coach. Bigger problems at Oregon, Oregon State, or bigger questions rather. Everybody's got problems, but what are the questions in your mind? What do you want answered? If 
you're a Duck fan or a Beaver fan, I want to hear from you. I want you to tell me which questions you want answered. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. I find it interesting that I haven't heard a lot about how Oregon plans to replace Kayvon Thibodeau. I haven't heard a whole bunch of people talking about it, and in part because I think you know Oregon won some key games without him. They went to Ohio State and beat Ohio State without Kayvon Thibodeau in uniform. He was in street clothes, on his cell phone, uh, waiting to get healthy. And so if you are a Oregon fan, I want to know, like, what are the questions for you this season? What do you want answered? And if you're an Oregon State fan, I think, you know, you look at the running back position, obviously. That's a position where between Jermar Jefferson and some others over the years, uh, you, you know, you've seen uh, Oregon State have great success running the ball. But what are the questions? I have a few for each program, but I want yours as well. 503-417-7575 is the number. I want to start with the Ducks. Obvious first question is Dan Lanning. Can the guy coach? Does he know what he's doing? Does Dan Lanning have it as a head coach? There have been a lot of people who have talked about, you know, the quarterback position or the offensive line or the defensive line or how will they be in the defensive backfield if you love their front seven. But I think the question that you have to figure out first, and I think we're going to learn probably at about by about the third week of the season, is how confident are you in Dan Lanning's coaching ability? I don't know if you learn it against Georgia. I don't think you learn it in week two because Oregon's not playing an opponent that is going to test them. But I think come week three where they play BYU, I think that's when you sort of see um, – you know, what is Dan Lanning about as a head coach? Can you trust him? You're not going to learn it in the Eastern Washington game in week two, but I think you get it in week three against BYU. Another question is, you know, how many quarterbacks is he going to play this season? And who is going to jump into the portal at that position? Because I think the game they've been playing to this point has been, hey, it's Bo Nix's team, let's give him the keys, and beyond that, it is probably going to be Ty Thompson as the two or Jay Butterfield as the two. The question being, and I think Dan Lanning's being wise, the question being who's jumping in the portal. If Ty Thompson is frustrated that he isn't starting, if he, if he is looking around going, it's just going to be another year on the bench, I, I will not be surprised if he jumps in the portal. And I think that's why Dan Lanning is cultivating Jay Butterfield so much. I don't know necessarily it's that he believes Butterfield can start for Oregon, but he may need Jay Butterfield if Ty Thompson defects and jumps into the portal and says, I'm going to go play somewhere else. Because, again, Oregon's got a couple of talented uh, quarterbacks that are in the next two recruiting classes. You've got Bo Nix, who's got some eligibility and some experience. So I think that quarterback position is going to be super interesting for Oregon. That's a big question I have. Like, you know, midseason – Who's still on the roster? Uh, another question I have for, for Dan Lanning in this Oregon program is the defensive backfield. I mentioned it a little bit ago, but Oregon's front seven, including you know Noah Sewell on defense, um, very good, very talented. They're disruptive. They're fast. They're hard-hitting. A lot of collisions, a lot of explosions. I have a lot of confidence that Dan Lanning knows what he's doing with a defense. And so I'm not worried about that front seven. But that defensive backfield is relatively inexperienced, and I think you know they lost quite a few players. And, and at the center of that were some players that probably should have come back for another season. We talked about the Ducks players that uh, declared early and uh, went undrafted. Uh, you know, I wrote about it. We've talked about it. But 
you know, when you look at Mikhail Wright and you look at Verone McKinley the third, and you look at, you know, the fact that like, gosh, how much better would be, um, you know, how much better would Oregon be had those guys that went undrafted that stayed in and stuck around? Because you know, if you look at Oregon had four players, four underclassmen, uh, players that you know gave up eligibility and didn't get drafted. And Verone McKinley was a you know, it was a fourth-year sophomore. Like, I get it. He was going, hey, I've been in college for a while. It's time to go make money. But Mikhail Wright and Verone McKinley, had they come back, um, they got horrible advice. But had they come back, I think, you know, we wouldn't have these questions. We'd be talking about Oregon having, like, nine or ten really good experienced players on defense. And so I'm really going to be looking at that defensive backfield. Let's see what they do in the Georgia game. Let's see what they do against Eastern Washington. We'll certainly try to test them. Let's see what BYU and Kalani Sataki's team tries to do to Oregon's secondary. But uh, that's a big question. And then finally, my final question for Oregon is just, it, it's more of a, uh, you know, it's more of a view from 20,000 feet. This conference is losing USC and UCLA. We have viewed Oregon and Washington and Utah probably as, the programs can become tent poles for this conference. And I think at different times they have been. You look at the conference championships from Oregon. You look at the fact that they're the last team that went undefeated in conference play in 2010 with Chip Kelly. And I think you could kind of hold up the idea that Oregon's record in the last decade in this conference has been phenomenal. Been in two national championships games uh, since, you know, 2011. And, you know, they have been very good. But are they capable of being a tentpole for this conference with USC out of the picture? And can they help carry this conference? And I think part of that answer is going to come this season. I want to pivot now to Oregon State. And again, I'll take your phone calls if you want to line up. What are your questions at 503-417-7575? This football season, what question do you want answered? Uh, Oregon State is different. Oregon State, like Utah, playing from a different position this year. And I think it's harder when you've had some success, you've had a little breakthrough, coaches will tell you all the time it's harder to sustain success than it is to build success. And Jonathan Smith is in that area right now. They, got, they became a seven-win team a year ago. They were you know, probably knocking on the door, knocking at eight or nine wins if they could have gone to Cal and Colorado and won those games. Oregon State would be sitting here as probably – right behind Oregon and Utah and USC, like the next team in this conference. But there's still some questions about whether or not they can sustain, whether or not they'll take a step back. Did they get better on offense? Like, you know, they're going to go with a freshman running back and Damian Martinez who looks the part, but, you know, he's a freshman. Yeah, can you trust a freshman to, to be your bell cow running back? I think there are some questions about Oregon State sort of – their ability to stick their nose in there and to stay in there this season. Because uh, last year they were very good at home, 6-0. and They beat Utah. But on the road, they were not a good team. They, you know, they only won one road game. They went on the road for the bowl game and didn't look great. So I'm interested to see what they're going to look like. Second question for Oregon State is about the quarterback, Chance Nolan. Can he take a step forward? Because they need him to do that. Like, you know, even in the bowl game, I kind of looked at him and I went, gosh, if this guy comes back as your quarterback, what's your ceiling? Is it eight wins, seven wins? What's your ceiling? It doesn't feel like it's nine, ten, eleven wins with Chance Nolan, but that's incumbent upon him to take a step forward. If he takes a step forward, look out. 
I think Oregon State could be more interesting than any of us are getting them giving credit for. So keep an eye on that. Another factor that uh, I think Oregon State needs to deal with is, you know, everybody knows they can run the football. Everybody is looking out for their run game. I'll never forget Kyle Whittingham, the Utah coach last year after Oregon State blocked a couple punts and beat Utah. He wasn't talking about the blocked punts. He ended up talking about the fact that Oregon State's run game was lethal. And I remember being at the USC-Oregon State game. USC couldn't stop Oregon State running the football. The question this year in this season I think relates to, given that everybody knows Oregon State can run the ball, can Chance Nolan and some wide receiver to be named later, can they hurt defenses down the field? They need a big play guy that can punish teams who bring up eight or nine defenders in the box and try to force you to beat them deep. That's where my head is. I want to know where yours is as well. 503-417-7575. Let's go to the phone lines. Mark's in Portland. Mark, what's the question you want to know? Uh, I want to know if the Ducks with uh, the, the big SEC guys here, the quarterback and the coach, are going to take a step forward or a step backward from last year. So they, they kind of still controlling the North the last, I think it's three seasons. So it's step one first, and that's hold on to the North. And then, you know, our revenge with Utah could come in the title game. But I want to know how Bo Nix is going to do in the Pac-12 instead of the SEC. Is that going to, is it going to be easier for him? Is it going to be more difficult? Is it, you know, I think the speed is probably more in the SEC and certainly more physical. So I, I'm optimistic. I think he might come in this league and, and feel like uh, he's, you know, like uh, he's got a little confidence. And yeah. uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. So that's my curiosity. Yeah, things didn't work out at, at Auburn for him. But he was playing Alabama, Georgia, LSU, Texas A&M, yeah. you know, all the way through. So the road is a little easier in the Pac-12. But he should come in. Don't you think, Mark, he should come in and he should just shine? Ah, uh, well, He's playing the defending champions in the first game, so yeah. Yeah, not, maybe not in that game. Maybe not in that game. <laughs> if he goes in that game and 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 you know plays them tough, I don't. It's going to be hard for Coach Lanning to bench him. If he comes in there and shows us that he can he can you know be, make this team successful against the arguably you know one of the best teams in the country in the first game, I think it's it's going to it's going to show us the light. Uh, uh, to see who's going to be leading this team at quarterback. If he, if we get lit up, then you know it's it's uh, we got a quarterback controversy. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's probably what Dan Lanning is telling his other quarterbacks: is look, uh, this job's up in the air. You know, even if they go with a guy in Bo Nix, who, by the way, has 39 career college touchdowns, 16 interceptions, 7,200 yards. But you look at his games from last season, and you know he. He was the starting quarterback against, you know, four SEC teams, five SEC teams that were ranked in the top 17 in the country, five games. You know, and in those games against those opponents, those five opponents, um, you know, he beat Mississippi. You know, they were the 10th ranked team. He, you know, he had a nice game in that game. He beat Arkansas. They were, you know, having a decent season. But he lost to Texas A&M. They scored only three points. He lost to Georgia. They scored only 10 points. He lost to Penn State. Uh, you know, they, he had a better game in that one, but, yeah, you know, they scored 20 points. But um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what not – maybe not what he does in the Georgia game because I agree with the callers who are going, you know, that's a, that's a different one. But, like, where, what is Bo Nix going to do in week three against BYU? 
that is a pretty good defensive team led by a head coach who's got a defensive background. But what can he do in a game like that? Let's go to Tualatin. Gary and Tualatin. Uh, Gary, what's your question? Hey, John. Go Ducks. Uh, well, my question, of course, is with, with the quarterbacks. Um, I know everybody's saying Bo Nix is the starter and everything else, but unless he is head and shoulders above the other two, I say play to the future, the third, fourth game of the season. He wasn't that spectacular in the uh, in the spring game. Um, it's hard to tell spring games because they run vanilla offenses and defenses, but uh, he should have lit it up more than he did, and the two that he threw for touchdowns were blown coverages. I thought the, I thought the freshmen, the, the younger kids, actually had the better games than those, uh, were loaded at wide receiver. So uh, I think you could play the younger kids and play to the future and do just fine. I think this team is the most talented team we've had and uh, very well could be the best team we've ever had. Yeah, I, I, I think there are some questions, though, Gary, and I think when you talk about best teams ever – I think you have to talk about, you know, uh, there were some Nick Aliotti defenses that had guys like DeForest Buckner. Um, uh, certainly, you know, you talk about uh, Haloti Nada at, at the nose tackle or Igor Olshansky, and um, and I think about Eric Armstead as well. But, um, you know, you saw, you know, Patrick Chung in the defensive backfield, and, and there were some really good Oregon teams that had some great talent. There were also some really good offensive teams that maybe had some more explosive playmakers. And, you know, there isn't – I don't see a LaMichael James yet on this, in this, on this roster. I, want, I need to see some of these guys and see what they can do. But I think, you know, before we could say are they the greatest Oregon team ever, I'd like to see them, you know, beat BYU in week three, right? And, you know, start this season two and one, no worse than two and one, uh, losing the season opener to Georgia. And I think that that's really important. Uh, you got the bald face truth. I want you to leave it here. Anna's going to pop by. There's so much more ahead. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I asked my questions in the last segment. Stephen. Sean, you got questions for Oregon and Oregon State. Let it rip. I do. So my main question is, it's about the coaching staff. And I know that Dan, I know Marty Cristobal wasn't the best, you know, X's and O's coach when he was there. Dan Lanning still has a lot to be proven. But they bring in Kenny Dillingham as offensive coordinator. Are they gonna? Are they gonna open it up a little bit more? Because under Cristobal is very, you know, methodical and slow paced. Dan Lanning, same type of thing, come from the SEC where they want to run and they want to pound the ball and they want to play ball ball control, defensive coach. Is he going to open up the Oregon offense a little bit? Because I'm with you, John. I just don't think that they're going to be able to beat Georgia in week one. So really the season's going to start in that week three game against BYU. And after that, after the Georgia game, I think they're more talented than every team that they play. So I want to see the Ducks open it up a little bit. And I wonder if Coach Dan Lanning is going to allow that on the offensive side of the ball, him being a defensive guy not wanting the offense to make those mistakes. Yeah, I think you're, you're, I think you're being nice a little bit when you say, you know, Cristobal needed to open the offense. I yeah. mean, he was he was downright frustrating at times, was he not? No, he was. And and that's my fear again is that we don't know what Dan Lanning wants to do, right? He can say all these things. He can bring in new offensive coordinators, but he's a defensive coordinator in the SEC. So I have that feeling in the back of my head like, well, maybe he's going to do the same thing because he doesn't want the offense to make a mistake. He has faith in himself to get the defense going. There you go. What about you, Sean? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I'm actually pretty optimistic about um, the offense opening it up, uh, much more so than the Joe Moorhead, Marcus Arroyo regime under Cristobal. I think Kenny Dillingham, go watch the spring game. Uh, I think that'll get you excited about the team chucking it deep. Uh, for me, it's the uh, the secondary. Like you said, you kind of stole mine, John. Um, a lot of kind of, I want to say, role players, kind of backups that are going to be kind of manning the show this year. Guys like Brian Addison, like uh, Jamal Hill, Triquez Bridges, Steve Stevens, those are guys that are projected starters as of right now. Um, there are some guys I really like in the secondary. Um, Christian Gonzalez, I think, is going to be an all-Pac-12 caliber guy. Um, I think Dante Manning and Avante Dickerson are a couple of young guys that are going to flourish this year. And Bennett Williams coming off a big injury, but I think he's a star. But still, uh, just uh, there's a lot of unknowns in that secondary, and especially at the uh, more so at the safety spot than the cornerback spot. So that's kind of my uh, that's the main position group that I'm a little iffy on this year. Yeah, is anybody worried about Bo Nix? Because yes. it, no. yeah, are you really worried about him, or is it just like you know maybe are you worried that he's going to face plant, or are you worried that maybe he's just going to be okay? I'm worried that he's only going to be okay. I know he was a top recruit going to Auburn, and he was you know one of the best guys out of high school, but he never fulfilled those lofty expectations, and he had some bad games against SEC teams. You know, he basically got benched at Auburn by the end of the year, and that's why he wanted to transfer because he wasn't going to be the guy there anymore. I know they got the new coaching staff there. So I do have a lot of questions about Bo Nix, and I'm not ready to just say he's going to be one of the best quarterbacks uh, coming into the Pac-12 this year. Let, let me give the opposite take with uh, with Bo Nix. I mean, he's he's coming from Auburn, where I think the coaching staff's been pretty rocky. We know that he's one of the most talented quarterbacks out of high school that Auburn had gotten. You know, he started as a freshman. That that was rarefied air at, uh, at Auburn. And now the difficulty level is going to go from all Madden to, or, you know, Hall of Fame mode to maybe an all Madden, all pro type mode uh, for Bo Nix. So I do think that, you know, he's super talented. We know that. And I think he kind of got out of a dysfunctional mess at Auburn where it's been multiple different coaching staffs. And, hey, if Bo Nix doesn't work out, like, I have no doubt that Ty Thompson or Jay Butterfield would do a nice job. So the quarterback position doesn't really worry me. The Auburn fan sites are making fun of Bo Nix. You know, he, he jumped in the portal, and maybe this is just what you do when somebody leaves your school, but I want to read his answer to a reporter's question when he was asked what attracted him to Eugene. And then you tell me if they're just uh, they're being uh, out of line with him. Here's what he said. He said, quote, when I was looking, evaluating my options, Oregon was really the number one the whole entire time. Because when you look at Oregon, you ask yourself, why not Oregon? The brand of Oregon. The O itself signifies so much in college football. You know, year in and year out, they have a chance to be in the top four in the country. That's what I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to be able to play and have a chance to play in the playoff, end quote. Now, Auburn fans are having fun with that because they're saying, hey, man, uh, the Pac-12 teams have only made the playoff twice. The SEC gets in the playoff all the time. But in the SEC, he's got to play Alabama, Georgia, LSU, Texas A&M every year. And uh, while Auburn did make the BCS National Championship game in 2013, um, you know, they haven't been uh, a regular installment of the playoff. It's been Georgia. It's been Alabama. Are they out of line for going after Bo Nix? I don't think so, but I also think Bo Nix is correct in his thinking as well. Uh, you know, you look at the the jobs that were out there with really good teams. I think Oregon, out of all those teams, has probably the best chance of making a college football playoff that was looking for a quarterback. I mean, USC, but they had Caleb Williams from day one in that transfer portal. So 
after that, I mean, I think Oregon has the best chance to have one loss, uh, zero losses, and get to the college football playoff. And he has a chance to be the starting quarterback for this team. Like, he's definitely competing probably in the lead for that job. So I don't think he's out of line, but I don't think Auburn fans are out of line because, as we talked about, him being one of the top recruits, he just never lived up to those expectations. And I know that he had a lot – like, he started against Oregon in that first game he ever played, and he was fine. And then after that, it seemed like he kind of went downhill the entire career at Auburn. So – I think it's it might be one of those relationships where it's good that he gets out and he goes to a different place and he and he flourishes, or just maybe he isn't actually as good as he ever was supposed to be. But you know, he won nine games his freshman year and they won the Iron Bowl. They beat Alabama. He was freshman of the year. You know, everybody saw him. You know, beat Oregon, come from behind. You know, good win for them in that opener. His sophomore season was really mediocre. His junior season was up and down, but he was. You know, he was 6-3 and three as a starter, as a junior. And, you know, he, he ultimately got hurt in the Mississippi State game. But 6-3 and three as a starter, I, I started looking at what did Auburn do without him? They went 0-3 without him. You know, and I, I, I kind of wonder if his downfall had, says more about Auburn than it does Bo Nix. You might, you guys, you might be right on that. And I'm fully willing to admit that. I just have questions when I watch him. I, I just haven't ever seen him be that guy. And we talk yeah. about the guy elevate to a college football playoff level. I haven't seen that out of him. And so totally I might agree. be wrong. And with the new offense, new school, it could be that. But I, I got to see before I am willing to. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I have not seen him be that. Even in the Oregon game, he didn't wow me. Like, I looked at the end of the game and I thought, gosh, that, that ball that he beat Oregon on uh, at the end of the game, I was down on the field when he threw it. It, you know, it was... It was. It showed some poise, but from a freshman to make that play, but I think it said more about the wide receiver and the breakdown in coverage than it did about Bo Nix. And maybe that's just me. So I, I kind of agree that. But what is Dan Lanning going to want for him? Want from him? Are they going to want Bo Nix to come out and put Oregon on its back, or are they going to hand the ball off to the eleven running backs that they have and just say, Hey, Bo Nix, we need you to make enough plays for us to win games, and we're going to play defense. I. I think a lot of this is going to have to do with what style uh, Dan Lanning wants to play. And I think Oregon fans were – I know I was frustrated with watching Marcus Arroyo. I, I felt better about Joe Moorhead, but i got to be honest. I felt like Joe Moorhead was in a straitjacket that Mario Cristobal put on him the whole time. And there were just a couple of little times when I talked to Joe Moorhead about the game plan where he kind of gave me that look. Like, you know, hey, man, I'm trying to open this up, but my head coach doesn't want me to do it. He never said that. But I, I wonder how much of what Oregon was doing on the offensive side of the ball last year had to do with Joe Moorhead uh, and how much of it had to do with Mario Cristobal. Uh, you know, because we all saw Justin Herbert, what happened to Herbert after he went to the NFL. Anna's popping into the studio next. Leave it here. <laughs> Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. Uh, listeners who were concerned about her yesterday because she didn't get her flan in the drive-thru will be pleased to know that Anna went through the drive-thru and got flan on her own today. <laughs> How did that feel for you? Can't keep me down, John. How did it feel to order it? Liberating. Really? Yeah. Did yeah. they? Uh, did uh, Did you enjoy it yet? No. 
I'm savoring. <laughs> I'm savoring the moment. How long does flan last? If you if you took it and you just kind of left it in the fridge, like mm -hmm. would it just last forever? I have no idea. It's just custard, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Like, because I can't think the restaurant is selling all that much of it. Like, how old? You is don't that know that. Flan? Every ah, customer going through that 24-hour drive-through might be ordering flan. I don't know about that. You might be the only one that's not ordering flan. I'm not ordering flan, especially not 11:30 at night flan. According okay. to the internet, uh, flan is okay in the refrigerator for three to five days. See, Look at that research. That that's why Stevens here, man. You're on it. Bam. And in the freezer, it can last up to two months. Ah. Uh -huh. Jeez. Look at that guy. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you, Anna, I'm, I'm, I started today's show by talking about Nick Rolovich. The former Washington State coach is suing uh, Washington State. People will remember he, he got fired because he didn't get vaccinated. Um, he's suing for $25 million. I, I hate this story, and at the same time, I know I have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want to talk about lawsuits. I I am so like into the little league story from yesterday and not into everything else, all the crap in sports, realignment, expansion, people suing people, Kevin Durant, I'm LIV golf. It's I, like when, I, I'm happy to get back to the games because the games are about to start and I'm really thrilled for that. But how should I deal with Nick Rolovich? Well, uh, I don't think we need to ta talk ad nauseum about it. I think it's worth acknowledging. Um, I'm a little bit confused about the lawsuit itself because it feels to me like Washington State was simply carrying out what were essentially the governor's orders. So I feel like if there was a lawsuit, the, the defendant would potentially be like the state of Washington or Governor Inslee who was imposing you know, these these requirements, these mandates. Um, so I really, I, I'm curious to see how on the legal side that will play out in terms of Wazoo and what sort of culpability they faced in, you know, what was just a carrying out of orders. Yeah, they, they fired him and, and Pat Chun, the AD at the time, or the AD now still at Washington State, um, you know, he made a statement the day that they fired Nick Rolovich and you know, he sort of just said, hey, this is, uh, you know, this is in result to uh, Nick Rolovich not following the rules. And, and you know, we were asking him uh, to, uh, to do this, and, and he didn't do it. And do you think they would have been better off just firing him and saying, we're firing you for performance issues? They, were, they, they lost two of the first three games of the season. Do you think that the mistake was that they leaned into the governor's ruling, or do you have to do that if you're Washington State? Um, I mean, I think there had been enough discussion up to that point that just saying that they were firing him for performance issues, I don't think anybody was going to buy that. No, it's true. Yeah. Nobody's going to buy it. Here was Chun's statement. Today, Nick Rolovich was formally notified by the university that he has failed to meet the requirements as stated in the state of Washington, Governor Inslee's Proclamation 21-14-1, related to vaccination requirements. The noncompliance with this requirement renders him ineligible to be employed at Washington State University and therefore can no longer fulfill the duties as a head coach of our football program effective immediately. The separation process has been initiated in accordance with the terms as specified in his contract. It is disheartening to be here today. Our football team is hurting. Our WSU community is fractured. 
Pat Chun, the AED at Washington State. It's interesting because as I hear it there, I think Washington State's defense is going to be, hey, we were just adhering to what the governor's mandate was. Like, yeah, you know, you should be suing the governor. You should right. in, in state of you should be suing the state of Washington, not Washington State. Yes, and so I mean, I don't know if it's going to wind up. You know, these kind of cases typically never actually go to a trial. And so I would be curious to see what is negotiated in the settlement discussions, you know, like whether he actually gets $25 million would be rather unlikely. So what is the amount that, you know, settles him down? Or is he doing this as a matter of principle? Because if he proceeds with this and does well with it, let's say he walks away with, you know, seven-digit figures or more, uh, it's going to be pretty precedent-setting for a lot of people who felt the way that he did. Obviously, it was an issue that divided our country, and uh, there will be uh, more lawsuits to follow. I think a lot of people will be watching this case. Yeah, and here's here's why I hate talking about it. it it's divisive. The topic itself is divisive and not in a good way. It's going to divide people again in a way that, like, I didn't like the feeling that we had on this show when people were going, oh, he has to do it, and other people saying, he doesn't have to do it, whatnot. I feel like it's divisive. I really, I cannot wait for the games to start. But I, and, I, and I hated that this story popped up because I was like, I have to deal with it. It's Nick Rolovich. It's in the Pac-12. It's in our Pacific Northwest region. And so I said, ah, oh, hell, I'll deal with it off the top of the show. But at the same time, there's part of me that just wants to go, man, this is supposed to be an escape. It was what I was saying yesterday. This sports show, this world that we're in, the sports world, I'm supposed to be working in the toy factory here. I'm not supposed to be dealing with the courts and the Supreme Court and lit, you know, arbitration and Deshaun Watson and LIV golf. Like, I'm supposed to be over here, you know. Like, I remember being on the elevator at the PacWest Center and all these financial world guys were working on the floor up above and the floor down below and the banking center of the of downtown Portland, right? Yeah. And I be I the doors would open and I had this feeling that I was walking into Wonka's chocolate factory and they were all going back to the mines. <laughs> like I that's what this show's supposed to be. How do I keep this show in a, an escape, Anna, while Nick Rolovich is trying to drag me in back into a divisive, you know, let's talk about the Supreme Court and Nick Rolovich isn't trying to drag you into anything. He is. No, he's not. No. But, I mean, isn't, isn't part of your show, though, the ability to, you know, discuss a broad spectrum of topics and a broad spectrum of opinions? I mean, that's kind of where we are at as a country these days. We don't agree on a lot of things. We do agree on some things. And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to talk through these things enlighten people, you know, maybe think about things in a different way than you did when you first started listening to the show. I don't know. I, I, and I agree with that, but I want those things we have different opinions on to be a little lighter fare. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, what's on your mixtape? Flawn. <laughs> what's, what's the best, you know, best stadium music? What's great, you know, arena music? You're inside the arena, you're you're at a Blazer game or an NBA game, like, you know, what's a good, you know, what's a good uh, music song that you hear inside the arena? That I, like, we could disagree on that all day, you know? <laughs> yeah. I have some favorites on the arena music. I don't know the names of any of these songs. That one. Zombie Nation. Is that what it's called? Yeah. 
Okay. They're all a bunch of zombies. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. See, I learned yeah. something there. See? Thanks for teaching me yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Anytime. We're Adding to playlist now. That's what we can do. But that song, you know, d- doesn't really go anywhere, does it? Just kind of does that to. over and over again. Background drone sound. Is that good? Is that good music in an arena? That... I don't know that it's the best song. Start me up's a good one. Too. You know what's funny is when you go around and I and I was traveling to a lot of NBA games years ago. Not so much anymore. Like you know, but I was in a lot of different NBA cities and. It was interesting to see how different the arena experience was in different NBA really? cities. Yeah. It's that different? Yeah. Like markedly so. Uh, yeah. There's just a, you know, you knew where you were. Like what? Give just, me, I need an example. Just. Like compare San Antonio to somewhere okay. else. Okay. San know. Antonio, it was more like the people were in uh, a lot of denim. Yeah. A lot of denim. Uh, the courtside fans, it wasn't L.A.-like. Like, it, it isn't like the place to be seen, L.A. Like, uh-huh. in L.A., everybody's dressed to to the nines. You know, like, it was just, uh, you know, a little more down home. And then and then when they when they win a game, they play that Timber song, you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, can't, I can't even remember. Da-da-da-da-da. That y- one? Yes, that one. Go ahead. Sing it again. Yes. Yeah, that one. Another one falls, you know, and then like basically, I have no basically, idea what the lyrics are. they chopping down a tree, yeah, timber, uh huh, and they play that when they win a game. I see. And but, you know, they play different songs. But when you're in Detroit, yeah, it's different. That that PA announcer. Have you guys heard the PA announcer in Detroit? Oh yeah. Detroit basketball. basketball. Yeah. It's like it's like they gave the microphone to a fan, and the fans love it, and they eat it up. And then they also had in Detroit they have these these uh, pyrotechnic things behind the basket. Really? I'm telling you, that doesn't sound uh, wise. No, it doesn't sound wise, and it's not wise when you're there. I'm gonna say this: I was sitting at an NBA Finals in 2005 next to Chuck Daly, the former Pistons coach, okay. on press row. Behind the basket. They have press row that's press row on the court. Yeah. And then they had a press row that was behind the basket. Okay. I happened to get the seat next to Chuck Daly, which was phenomenal because for the whole series, I'm sitting by Chuck Daly. I can ask him questions. I just talk to him and I'd see him after the first game and then see him after the second game. But I'm going to tell you, they do something during the pregame warm-ups. The lights go down. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the baskets, you know, the standards that the baskets are hanging on. Yeah. Uh, have pyrotechnic things, and they shoot flames in the air. No way. Yeah. Real flames. Real flames, and you can feel it like you're too close to the campfire. <laughs> and there's a, like, and when it goes up, I literally am like, oh, my gosh, like it's singeing my eyebrows. Like, you know, I look at Chuck Daly. He, that guy had a great head of hair. May he rest in peace. Chuck Daly had just a phenomenal head of hair. Yeah. And I thought to myself, like, if this place goes up, like if somebody had put that thing at the wrong angle, yeah, it was going to turn Chuck Daly into, <laughs> into a, a sparkler, a, a Chuck human Daly sparkler. Kebab, you know, that's what that was going to happen. But, you know, just different music in different arenas. Yeah. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the field, So how do you compare the experience for people in the Moda Center then to arenas nationwide? Uh, I think the Moda Center is a little overproduced mm-hmm. compared to some other markets. I think Sacramento and Portland come to mind in particular is the two places that I feel like, this is just me, okay? Mm-hmm. Don't take this as a criticism if you're in Blazer Game Operations. This is just me. 
I feel like the game operations people need to get out and see games in other NBA cities. Hmm. I felt like Sacramento was trying to be L.A. And I think Portland has a little bit of that inferiority, too. Hmm. I think as a market, we have that. Let's be yeah. real. I think Sacramento is not the Bay Area, and it's not L.A. Yeah. Has a little bit of an issue. Mm-hmm. Portland is not Seattle. Right. And I think we do a little bit of rubbernecking at Seattle. Like, I hope Seattle doesn't hear this because we're just being honest here. Yeah. Like, I feel like we pay we pay too much attention and we look at Seattle a little bit like a little brother looks up to big brother. Yeah. And we should just be comfortable being ourselves. Just do our own thing. We don't, you know, and part of it was, I think, rooted in the idea that Paul Allen owned the team. He was a Seattle guy. Yeah. He had Nate McMillan, Mr. Sonic, as the coach. Mm-hmm. He drafted Brandon Roy. He drafted Martel Webster. They were two Seattle kids. It was like he had all this Seattle, Jamal Crawford on the team. It was all this Seattle on the roster. I feel like, like when Jody Allen sells this team, Portland just needs to be Portland. Hmm. Now, I, I kept waiting for the Space Needle to be moved to the, like, the <laughs> Rose Garden area. <laughs> You know, like, oh. More food carts in, on the concourse. We're going to huh? do it there. All right, is, this a good, is this a good arena song right here? Let's, let's, let's talk this one. Let's get it started. Ha! Let's get it started in here. Let's get it started. Ha! Let's get it started Black Eyed Peas, you going for that? Yeah, or? that's good. It's pretty old school. You guys like that? I mean, maybe for, like, my son's games. My childhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there it, you go. Here's one that goes right with it. Perry's going to roar any time now. Yeah. Not nah. getting into that one. Doesn't work, does it? Her Super Bowl performance was great, though. <laughs> the halftime performance, she did a good job. What I'll are go- your guys' favorite arena songs? Oh, man. Um, I, don't, I don't know. You probably don't know the names of these songs. I know. I mean, What's the problem? That's pretty classic. Yeah. You know, the Raiders, I used to love when the Raiders were in Oakland, man. They, they'd they come out at the beginning of the game. Yeah. It was Raider fans. It was like a bunch of accountants and nurses that were dressed up in, like, costume. It was like Halloween at every Raider game. <laughs> and then they'd do that. All the fans would just go ballistic. I, they don't have that in Vegas. No. That didn't carry over? Didn't carry over. These people in Vegas are confused by it. (laughs) What time is it? Why why are they ringing bells? You know? I think it's really cool at the the Rams stadium when they play like Snoop Dogg. Like Mm. the da-da-da-da-da. Like whenever they score a touchdown, it's like very L.A. It's very fitting. Oh, yeah. What do they play? Let me hear you you do that again, Sean. It's like la-da-da-da-da. Snoop Dogg. The next episode. Yeah, Dr. Dre, Snoop, that's more my speed, personally. Yeah. Oh, so like the Super Bowl performance yeah, from the most recent Super Bowl, speed. basically. Yeah, the last yeah. two, the weekend, too. That's more, uh, I think that's more my speed. <laughs> the weekend. Did you like that halftime show? I thought it was a little oh, too artsy and abstract. Oh, I what? love that one. I love, yeah. the, I love the weekend. Like Me the too. weekend might be my favorite artist. Performer. I like the music. I didn't like the. I didn't like the halftime oh, show. Oh come on! That was like the best halftime show. It, it was, was about a little the bit. Music. It, was also- mon- it was money heist costumes. It was weird. It, yeah. You know? It was dark. It was also the COVID year. The weekend spent a lot of his own money on that performance because the oh. budget was limited because of COVID. 
Oh, you're talking about the year that the weekend. That was not the most recent Super Two Bowl. Two years ago, Tampa Two Bay. Yeah, ago. yeah that one was weird. It was very artsy. He looked like he was inside of a microwave, you know, a really big microwave. I thought he, um, I thought it was distracting, the costuming yeah. and all that. I, it looked like Money Heist to me. Yeah. I don't know. They were in, you know, the red outfits. and But he was trying to make a statement about what, like, don't judge people by their appearance or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I just want to hear good music. You're there because you play good music. His music is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I agree with, you know, Stephen and Sean. The weekend. Mm -hmm. The end of Blinding Lights. Uh, yeah, that one was a lot of fun. The year before that, it was J-Lo and Shakira. Yeah. That was a hot it. one. I didn't, I didn't hate it. A lot of hips in that one. <laughs> the, the only people that hated it were people who couldn't stand how much their hips shook and every every move that they every gyration that they made. There was so much hips in that show. They they only had room for two on the stage. I mean, it was you know, Aerosmith wanted to be there, but you know, J Lo went nope. Yeah, I remember uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, the star basketball player, tweeted like, "Oh, that halftime show almost got me in trouble." <laughs> I like that. I want you to leave it here. You got the PFT statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You know, batters in baseball games and college football and NFL teams should not be the only ones that get walk-up songs. We should all have a song, like when you go into work, that starts playing. It's your song. You know? Yeah. I don't know what my song would be, but I know it would be upbeat. Like boxers, you know, boxers come into the ring. You get a song when you come into the ring. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Why shouldn't we all get that? Like Steven should come into work every day. Steven, what time are you roll in today? I rolled in at 11 o'clock. Okay, eleven o'clock. He is in there, and he, you know, he walks into the office. The music should play the minute the elevator open door opens. <laughs> like it should be like Stephen should be fired up, hyped for his day. Why? Why is it that Major League Baseball players who jump into the batter box, or NFL players, or boxers, or UFC fighters, are the only ones that get songs? I agree, and we have construction people everywhere, so they should be playing my music as I walk in. Yep. What would your What would your song be? Come Ooh. on, come up, come up with Ace. It doesn't have to be like your dream song, but what would be a song that you could play? That would be your song. Ooh. Um, See, put you on the spot. He did. Yeah. Um, there was always a version of, uh, you know, you go something like uh, Ozzy Osbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Why well, I can't think of the song off the top of my head. Crazy Train yeah, crazy or something train, like yeah. that? Yeah. It's a good, good start to the song. Okay. I like that. What about you? What about you, Sean? You got a walk-up song? Mm, can't Tell Me Nothing by Kanye West. Is that an appropriate answer? I feel like 95% of your audience right now is like, Kanye West. It's the song from The Hangover. Right. I don't know that song. Can you pull it up real quick? Can one of you guys pull it up and I can hear it? You know? like Is it, is it, is it safe to play? Yeah. Uh, I have a scene. Kanye I, I, West, after all. Here's how vast our audio vault is. I put in Hangover, and I got a, uh, I got a clip from the movie. <laughs> I got a, uh, I think it's a... Uh, yeah, it's not a it's not a Mike Tyson thing, but let's hear. Here's it. It says here we should work in teams. Who wants to be my spotter? I don't think you should be doing too much gambling tonight, Alan. Gambling? Who's anything about gambling? It's not gambling when you know you're going to win. Counting cards is a foolproof system. It's also illegal. It's not illegal. It's frowned upon. It's frowned upon. <laughs> <laughs> let's hear the song. 
See, that should be the song. Sean gets off the elevator. That's playing. Nah, 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 nah. And then he's all fired up going into work. It's a great walk-up song. Everybody, try that if you're listening at home. Go into work with your boombox tomorrow. <laughs> BFFT From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I don't want to hear from bosses going, hey, my employees are walking into the pizza parlor and they all are demanding walk up songs now. You should be giving them those songs anyway. Do you remember going into a pizza parlor when it used to have like a like a uh, jukebox in the corner? Anna, do you remember that? You pick out a song? Loved it. It was very powerful to be the one who went up and chose the song that everyone had to listen to. Steven, you ever you remember doing that jukebox? Yeah. I remember, place? I remember going there and as a kid thinking, I have no idea what any of these songs are. But, uh, yeah, no, I agree with Anna. There's a, there's a real power move because it's like, you know what? You have to listen to my songs. Anybody who grew up in a big family had the same experience. Like, if you had a record player or a stereo system in the living room, the, the whole family had to listen to your music. Or, or, like, when I was a kid, we used to go to a, a video store. And let me tell you, millennials, there used to be stores where we had to go <laughs> and we had to pick out the movie they were called Blockbuster. They were called Hollywood Video. Well, there you, had were some, to, you had to hope yeah. they were in. Sometimes yeah. they weren't in. Oh, wasn't it so disappointing? Like when you would come in, there'd be a new release out, and you get the, you grab it, and you take it up to the counter, and they go, no, 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 this is just empty, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> this, the movies are all out. Oh, sorry. I thought I got one. Um, I, was in, uh, I was in the Giants clubhouse one time when they had a disagreement over the stereo, San Francisco Giants. It was in the days of Barry Bonds. Right around 2000, 2001, I was covering the Giants, and you know how, like, if you've ever been into a Major League Baseball clubhouse, it's like a locker room, but it's a nice locker room because the teams play so many games and the players are there for multiple days. Um, they make themselves at home. Like, it's a little more homey than an NFL locker room where a team is only going to play, like, eight games a year at their home stadium or whatnot, and they're usually at the practice facility, so they're just using the stadium locker room for a game day. But a Major League Baseball clubhouse has got – it's got some home feel to it. And the Giants had this stereo receiver in the middle of the clubhouse. And obviously when you have, like – 20 to 30 players in there, you're not going to get an agreement on what kind of music to play. And Barry Bonds usually ran the room, but it was at a time when the Giants had Jeff Kent, who Bonds and Kent got in an altercation in the dugout, and they had some other big personalities like Rod Beck, the closer. He was kind of a country boy. And uh, Rod Beck came in, and I was in the clubhouse, and Beck was one of the first person to come in there, and he had country music playing. This is after a game. And Barry Bonds walked in and walked over to the stereo receiver and changed the music. And then 
what went to his locker. Rod Beck didn't like that he changed the music. <laughs> and Rod Beck was kind of going like to hell with you. So Rod Beck, you know, the Giants closer, walked over and he changed it back to country. And then he went back to his locker. Oh, and then Barry Bonds <laughs> got up. And everybody was watching this at this point. Mm -hmm. Barry Bonds got up and went over and changed it back and kind of looked at him like, don't touch it again. Oh, my gosh. So Rod Beck. So juvenile. In that moment. <laughs> oh, I love this moment. So memorable. Rod Beck in that moment goes back to the stereo receiver, changes it back to country for the third time. Oh, And wow. then rips the knob off the receiver. No, he didn't. He pulled the knob off. It's like a big brother move. If you were in a family and you are the older brother, you know that move. Rod Beck pulled the knob off the receiver and took it with him. And no. everyone in the locker room started laughing. Everyone laughed like Except Barry Bonds. Oh, but he couldn't do anything because the, the, the knob was gone. He took the knob. And anybody who's good, like I grew up in a family of four. I knew about the knob. Yeah. I knew you could remove the knob, like if you pulled it out. And Rod Beck knew that knob came wow. off. And so he took it off. And there was nothing Barry Bonds could do. He had to sit there and listen to Hank Williams Jr. or whatever it was Rod Beck was listening to that the day. The things you've seen, I swear. All right, let's do the five at five. It's the five biggest things going on. The five at five. Well, Deshaun Watson is apparently going to start the preseason opener at Jacksonville. The Browns say they expect him to be there on Friday against the Jaguars. The team made the announcement just before boarding a flight to Jacksonville. Watson and the Browns are waiting to see whether or not he's going to be suspended longer than six games. The NFL believes he is going to be suspended. Roger Goodell, the uh, NFL commissioner, is adamant that Deshaun Watson is going to be suspended. In fact, Goodell uh, is about to have a standoff with Deshaun Watson over this. Uh, here's what Roger Goodell said about Deshaun. Well, as you know, it's part of the CBA. Uh, the, the two parties had that right. Uh, either party could uh, could uh, certainly challenge uh, and appeal that, and that was something that we thought was our right to do, as well as the NFLPS, and we decided it was the right thing to do. Why go back to beginning a full-year uh, because we've seen the evidence. She was very clear about the evidence. Uh, she reinforced the evidence uh, that there was uh, multiple violations here, and they were egregious, and it was predatory behavior there. Predatory behavior is the key word there. 16-page report from the judge in a six-game suspension. Deshaun Watson on the field. Gosh, the Cleveland Browns sure must be proud of themselves. Anna, go ahead, number two. I'm intrigued by this latest story about Mike Tyson. He is mad at Hulu. They're coming out with an unauthorized series based on his life. It's called Mike. He's not happy with them. He's basically saying that they've stolen his story to make money off of it. He's also praising UFC President Dana White for turning down a lucrative promotional deal out of loyalty and friendship to him. I don't know if he's going to wind up taking this to a court of law. He won't win. I mean, it's it's uh, entertainment. It's creative license. They can, they can do a movie or they can write a book about Mike Tyson without his permission. They could write a book about me if they wanted to. Nobody would buy it. But my, if they want to <laughs> write a book or make a movie about Mike Tyson, they can do it. 
you know, I think Mike Tyson's making a mistake here. I think he's drawing attention to this Hulu series. I think it's going to, more people are going to watch it now. Hmm. Well, there you have it. How about Dana White, though? Because Dana White said that Hulu wanted to pay Dana White and UFC to promote the movie. Yes. But then Mike Tyson called him and said, you know, Hulu's a slave master. They're, they're stealing my life. And uh, Dana White backed out of the deal. So he says. Yes. Uh, don't let Hulu fool you, Mike Tyson said. I don't support the story about my life. They stole my story and didn't pay me. It begins streaming on Hulu on August 25th. You, you can decide whether you want to watch it. Will you watch it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's enough about Mike Tyson that will in, like entice me to watch a whole series about him. Do you remember when I had him on the show that some people didn't some people didn't like it that yeah. I brought him on? This was about eight nine years ago. Yeah. Tyson came on the show. He was he was doing that act where he travels around and he tells his story. Yeah. He's already told his story. <laughs> like he's mad that Hulu's doing it too. So he came on the show and I had people say you shouldn't have put him on guy was convicted of sex assault mm -hmm. but my argument to that was you know he went to prison he was charged he's a relevant public figure and I didn't bring him on and do a softball interview with him I just I brought him on and we you know it was interesting guest to me mm -hmm. but people some people got mad some people were like yeah, oh that. you're glorifying it yeah I don't know I I think Mike Tyson's a really interesting character like his life Will you story, watch it yeah, I'll then watch it. You will. Okay. I will watch it. All right. Mike Tyson. Well, he should come. He should fire back. Go do another. You know, he should do the Hulu story. <laughs> Mike Tyson should do the Hulu story. Let me do this, the script. Let me do the story of Hulu. Mike Tyson narrating it. Third thing in our five at five. Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tagovailoa told reporters that he thinks the Dolphins are all in on him despite their prior interest in Tom Brady. He was asked about it twice this week, and he said, quote, yeah, I mean, I'm still here. To me, that's all noise at this point. Tua in the Dolphins practiced with Brady's Buccaneers today. Joint practice, first of two joint practices, before the team's preseason opener Saturday at Raymond James Stadium. How would you feel if you're Tua and you knew that the Dolphins tried to go get Tom Brady and were fined for tampering all those years ago? How would that feel to you? Is it just is it just business or would that bother you? Oh gosh, I think deep down it would eat at you at least a little bit, right? If you're human. But then you would also just kind of understand. Tua said, I would say the only thing that gets frustrating is that if you hear it every day or see it every day. He said, for me, I eliminate it. I don't hear it. I don't see it. I go home. I study. I wake up the next day and I come back. That's the best thing that he could do. Absolutely. It can't affect him. You believe him? <sighs> I do in that he has to have the mental discipline to shut it out of his brain. You know, and not let it affect his performance. I don't think I would ask him about it. I, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Like, I'd ask him once. Yeah. Why would they continue to ask him about it? Like, if his answer's going to change? You know, uh, you know what? I changed my mind. Two days ago, it didn't bother me. Now it does. 
You know how that goes, though, right? Different reporters on a different day and try also, to get a different soundbite. And they're practicing with the Buccaneers, and Brady's there. Yeah. So now it's in your face. Yeah. Just go out, play him. You know? Yeah. I mean, for crying out loud, the guy's like 50. <laughs> go out, play him, Tua. Stop the music. Anna, number four in the five at five. Go. I don't know why I think this is interesting, but Boston Red Sox are saying that Chris Sale's terrible season just got a whole lot worse. He had a bike accident over the weekend and broke his wrist, and now he's done for the rest of the year. He was already nursing a finger injury that he took after taking a line drive off his hand back in July, but now he actually has a broken wrist and had to have surgery on Monday and will miss the rest of the season. Uh, do these pitchers, do they ensure their throwing arms? Like, I don't know. I don't know if anybody's going to give you insurance on that. But they do have contracts. That's, you know, that's kind of insurance. Yeah. I just, how, how do you go do that? Like, how do you go and injure yourself that badly when the rest of your livelihood relies on, you know, you <laughs> that appendage working? Yeah. <laughs> Well, there you go. As a TV anchor, could you ensure, like, you know, your ability to read a prompter? Should I ensure my fingers, my ability to type and write? You know? No. Nobody's going to go for that. No, there was a TV anchor that insured Mary Hart. She, she insured. Insure? Didn't she insure her legs? She insured her legs because they were visible on the television. And that was her livelihood, her, her legs? <laughs> I guess it was part of it. Hmm. It was one of those like entertainment national anchors insured. I believe she insured her. Do you think that was for publicity, though? I don't know. I just took it at yeah, face value. Yeah, she did. She insured her legs by Lloyd's of Lloyd's of London. Yeah. Two million dollars. You right. know what? I got a picture of her legs right here. They're not that great. <laughs> well, Lloyd's of London obviously said that they were. Worth you know, $2 million. A million apiece? <laughs> is that what they're saying? Maybe you should insure your fingers for typing. Nah. Your wrists. Uh, I'm good. Finally, the fifth thing in our five at five. Your mouth. There have been, <laughs> there have been only eight players in NFL history who rushed for 2,000 yards. Tennessee Titans have had two of them. Derrick Henry did it in 2020. He's the last. He's ready to return to the backfield. He played only nine games last season. He kind of broke down. He said his mindset is the same. He said, I, you know, I, he's willing to put the team on his back. Whatever it takes, he said. He led the league in carries when he got to 2,000 yards in 2020. Last year, as I mentioned, only eight games. He missed the last nine games of the season. He had a foot injury. He says he's ready to get it going. He's a throwback, though. I mean, you talk about, you know, guys that really carried the rock a whole bunch of times. Eric Dickerson, Terrell Davis, uh, Derek Henry. I mean, those guys, you know, they weren't like Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders rushed for 2,000 yards, and he carried the ball only 20 times a game that season. Barry Sanders was special in that way but Derrick Henry is an absolute workhorse he's ready to carry the rock 
but it seems like the franchise is probably going to take some of that workload off of him if they're smart. So fantasy football league people, be wary of Derrick Henry. I, I wonder about his durability, and I wonder if I wonder if the Tennessee Titans will try to uh, take some of that pressure off him and give some carries to some other people. And that is the five at five. We'll kick these things around coming up. And oh, by the way, guys, without looking it up, can you name how many of the eight players to rush for 2,000 yards can you name? You guys want to take a stab? Uh, Eric Dickerson. Yes. Um, That's one. Adrian Peterson. Yeah, I was say that. Two. LT. LaDainian Tomlinson. Uh, no. DeMarco Murray? No. Barry Sanders? Yes. That's three. <laughs> Terrell Davis? Yeah, it's really is Davis. four. O.J. Simpson is five. Earl Campbell. O.J. Um, Sean Alexander with the Seahawks. Oh, wow. He did it. Uh, I mentioned Derrick Henry. How about Chris Johnson with the Titans as wow, well? Wow, I forgot it. about him. Chris Johnson did it. Well, uh, you, you had mentioned this. So I didn't want to mention the ones you already mentioned. Amon Green with the Packers did it. Amon and Green did it? He did it. Yep. He did it. So those were uh, those are all 2,000-yard Russian guys. So there you have it. No, no, Amon Green only got to 1883. My bad. Mm. Sorry, Amon. Oh, jeez. Fell short. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Did uh, make a correction or another run at the 2,000-yard club in, in fo- football. I kind of screwed it up. All right, here are the running backs in NFL history that have rushed for 2,000 yards. Eric Dickerson, as Stephen pointed out, Adrian Peterson, Jamal Lewis had 2,066 yards in 2003. Barry Sanders did it. Derrick Henry did it. Terrell Davis did it. Chris Johnson did it. And O.J. Simpson did it. Those are the eight. Uh, Everybody else is close but no cigar. Barry Sanders also had 1,883 yards in another season. Sean Alexander only rushed for 1,880. Jim Brown rushed for 1,863 one year. Um... You know, most unlikely running backs to have great seasons like that. You mentioned LaDainian Tomlinson. He had 1,815 yards one year. That's good for 21st all-time among running backs. DeMarco Murray was at 1,845. That's good for 18th all-time. Walter Payton rushed for 1,852 in 1977. But uh, really interesting. Derrick Henry's 2,027 yards really stands out in 2020. Um, it, you know, it had been eight years since somebody rushed for 2,000 yards. Adrian Peterson did it in 2012. So there it is. Now you know. Uh, that's it. Uh, when I see, whenever I see somebody rush for 2,000 yards, I wonder how much longer their career will last. I mean, I think we know that, like, when Derrick Henry did it in 2020, it's interesting to look at how he broke down after. Do you guys worry at all, just from a mileage standpoint, about the miles that were put on Damian Lillard in that sense? You know, he had some statistical years that were just phenomenal in the last couple of years. But we watched him break down a year ago. Do you guys think at all that that played a role, the miles on Lillard? Oh, 100%. I, I, he has carried the franchise for so many years. There was never anybody else on the team. You know, CJ McCollum was a good player, but no one even close to Dame's level 
and Dame carried this team for so long. So, yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with it, and I think it was just accumulation uh, from last season with everything that all happened at once and that abdominal injury. So, I, you know, I want to hope and I want to think that he's going to come back healthy because he's given me no other reason to think differently. But at his age, with the stuff that he's gone through with this franchise, I mean, I, I have my doubts, but, I, you know, I, I don't want to doubt Damian Lillard because I think that's a bad move. Yeah, and it's why the uh, the Team USA thing, kind of the Olympics a couple of years ago, it, it felt like that was he was coming off of two intense seasons, like the bubble and then the year right after that. Yeah. Um, and then he went and played for Team USA, and he clearly just wasn't right once he got to Tokyo. So it kind of, you know, it just felt like that wasn't the best decision. It felt like that's when the, the ab stuff started to uh, kind of pile on. He, I think he's done that a couple of times in the offseason, that it, it, it wasn't wise. And I don't know if... His agent, Aaron Goodwin, has enough sway to tell him, hey, you need to rest. Like, you need to shut it down. But, you know, his first three NBA seasons, he played all 82 games. He averaged 38.6 minutes a game his rookie year. Um, You know, and then he came back and averaged like 36, 36, 36, 36, almost 37, 35, 37 and a half, 36. Like, a lot of minutes on him. And remember when he went to the All-Star game, um, that first year, he went and he competed in every competition. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, I do. First person to do that. Yeah, yeah. Like I, it was great that he did that, but was it worth it? Like it in the summers, you know. I get it. The Olympics, it's a big draw. We always criticize the athletes like LeBron, who, you know, who will say, "Hey, I don't want to do that stuff." But I kind of wonder, like, between you know, between him pushing the envelope during the regular season and being in a situation where he had to carry, carry, carry the team, take a bunch of shots, play high minutes, and him doing that at the All-Star game and him having, you know, kind of the side hustle of his rap career and all of that stuff. I just wonder at some point, like, you know, will he learn at age 32? That's what he's turning here this summer. Will he learn to gear down a little bit and focus on the 82 games that really count? You would hope so, and last season, I mean, going into the year, Chauncey Billups said they want to give Damian Lillard less playing time. They want to rest him a little bit more, but they actually ended up playing him more minutes per game than he did the season before. So we'll see if Chauncey can do that because that is one thing that they have talked about is they need to limit those minutes because it's more important uh, if the Blazers do actually make the playoffs to have a healthy Damian Lillard for the playoffs. I'm left thinking about that, and then... You know, where the problem is, I get the temptation to put Lillard on the court and leave him on the court because, you know, there have been some years here where they just, they the fall off was so dramatic. But I think that really is going to take coaching from Chauncey Billups to be able to say to Lillard, look, I get it. I've been there. I'm a player. I know I'm a competitor. I know what it is to be on the court and want to be on the court all the time. But in, in this game, it is a marathon, not a sprint because the Blazers – like without him on the court again this season, it's the same damn story as the you know last Groundhog Day for eight straight years. Uh, without him on the court, they don't have a chance. So they need somebody to step up. They need a seasoned uh, you know Anthony Simons. They need a healthy and productive Yusuf Nurkic. They need a little surprise, like somebody somebody be a surprise and step up because you know. And then Lillard needs to be healthy. If that stuff happens, maybe they're fun, but. We talked about this yesterday, and I think, Stephen, you brought up the point. Like, you don't think they're a contender, and also you don't think they're very fun right now. Yeah, I really don't. I mean, I don't 
they don't play defense, and the the offensive style that they were running under Terry Stotts was not very fun to me. It was a lot of ISO, a lot of pick and roll. And now with Chauncey Billups, I think it's going to be a lot of the same thing. I know he wants to do a lot of off-ball stuff, but Damian Lillard is so good with the ball and the pick and roll. Like, why would you go away from that? And so, for me, it's not as if they're just – there's not that exciting of a team. I already know what their destiny is, so I just don't think that they're exciting to watch, and I don't think that they're going to be a contender at all. Like, I don't see it in any way uh, anyway, because – uh, Vegas right now, you know, they've had their wind holds out. Caesars just put theirs out officially. They're 10th in the West right now. And I've done this. I think they're the 10th best team in the Western Conference. And it's more of a factor that the West is so good, but it's also the fact that Damian Lillard needs lots of help on his team because he's getting up there in age and he's had to carry it for so long. He's got to have some help. And you're right, John, someone's got to step up, but I just don't see it on this roster. See, I, I think they're at least fun. Uh, I think their guards especially have uh... – Definitely have some fun to them. You know, like Damian Lillard, Anthony Simons, I think is going to be a lot of fun to watch this year. Gary Payton the second, Scott, crazy athleticism and hops. And then I think Shaden Sharp, whenever he sees the floor, if he sees the floor during his rookie, rookie season, is going to be a lot of fun to watch. Um, but one thing I'm keeping an eye on is, you know, I, I kind of want to see if the Blazers are going to be a 10 seed or, you know, maybe at best they're like a four or five seed this year. Like, you know, why Why not Damian Lillard pour it all into the regular season, go for an MVP award? If your team's not going to be uh, a title contender, I wouldn't mind seeing Dame try to go for, you know, 30 points per game. Or maybe, you know, if it's not Dame, why, why not uh, another, you know, some kind of other player, just some kind of regular season award that the team can help chase. That, I mean, I that, know th- that award, though, you know, he averaged 30 points a game, you know, 2019, 2020. And, you know, he played 37 and a half minutes a game. It led the league. You know, it was clear he was trying to get, you know, statistically game for whatever. Um, I don't think that serves him, though. I think, you know, and and granted, the MVP award is going to go to somebody who is in the playoffs in probably one of the top four teams in the East or the West. It's not going to go to, like, some bubble team in the Western Conference that's got a player who's, you know, obviously part of Lillard's statistical uh, rise coincides with the fact that the Blazers didn't have a lot around him. I mean, he had the ball in his hands all the time, C.J. McCollum and him, and that was it. And so I wonder on a good team, I would rather see the Blazers play deep in the playoffs and have Lillard average 22 a game than have him try to average 30 a game and be your MVP. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I agree with John. I, when the Blazers made the Western Conference Finals and got swept by the Warriors, obviously, I think that's more fun of a run than to see Damian Lillard win an MVP in my mind because – I want that chance of, well, maybe they have a slight chance to win the NBA Finals, even though I knew that season they weren't going to. That's just more exciting to me. And also, back to the running back uh, talk, John, you were correct. After everyone ran for 2,000 yards, they did a quick little research. Uh, their averages, yards per rush, went way down for the rest of their career. It's it's just, it makes sense. Like, you know, hey, uh, anybody who's ever done anything physically exerting, you know, like the next day you're not as good. And so I wonder about like Derrick Henry in a season where he rushes for 2,000 yards. And it, and it, I thought it was really interesting when you look at the eight players who have rushed for 2,000 yards that, you know, nobody's done it twice. Yeah, so I did the guys from 2000 on. So Jamal Lewis ran for 2,000 yards uh, in 2003. He averaged 5.3 yards a rush that year. The rest of his career, he and this was just basically when he was a starting running back, not as a, not as a backup, he averaged 3.8 yards a rush. Uh, Chris Johnson, same thing. He ran for 2,006 yards in 2009. He averaged 5.6 yards a carry. In the couple of years after, where he was the main starting running back for teams, he averaged 4.2 yards a carry. And then A.J. Peterson, exact same thing. He averaged six yards a rush when he ran for 2,097 yards. After that, 
4.2 yards of rush. So DeMarco he, Murray. He went uh, way down. A couple of, DeMarco Murray, probably like 2016-ish, I want to say. He ran for 1,800. You referenced it, John. And then do you remember what happened that offseason after the Cowboys rushed him for 1,800-plus? He couldn't they, walk? They traded him. Yeah, yeah. they literally <laughs> traded him. So they, they, they used him for 1,800-plus yards. It was like an almost MVP season, and then they traded him. Uh, I thought that was kind of the uh, harsh reality of the NFL. The, the guy that jumps out at me of the eight guys that rush for 2,000 yards is Chris Johnson. He's 195 pounds when he, when he did that. And everybody else, like Dickerson was 220. Peterson was 220. Jamal Lewis was like 240. Derrick Henry's almost 250. Uh, you know, this guy like Terrell Davis, uh, he's, he's in the, he was in the low 200s. Barry Sanders, uh, even though he was slight, was, you know, he was 5'8", 203. That's what he was listed at. I ran into Barry Sanders in a casino one time. I couldn't believe how lean he was after his playing career. He was like 5'8", probably 185 pounds. I mean, he was just – I was like, wow, that guy rushed for 2,000 yards in the NFL? So I, I kind of look at the guys – like I'm, I'm impressed with what Eric Dickerson did, of course, and Adrian Peterson and Barry Sanders and whatever. But Chris Johnson at 195 pounds rushing for 2,006 yards, that's remarkable. He was like a 4-2-40 guy. Like, that guy was a straight uh, straight speed. You know, he was a lightning bolt. So I guess you're right. I mean, you go back and watch some of those highlights, and uh, he was just a guy that could bust one for 80 yards whenever he wanted. And, you know, he after that 2,000-yard season, he never rushed for – he rushed for 1,364 the next year, then 1,047, and then two years later he is down to 600 yards. So really interesting to see the fall off with running backs in the NFL. Uh, once you leave it here, you got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. Looks like John either is having uh, some technical difficulties. Or he is uh, a little late coming back here, but uh, Sean, let's, I want to talk about the Blazers a little bit more because uh, we just talked about them a little bit. Uh, you you seem to like them a little bit more than I do right now. Vegas has been tenth in the playoffs in the West. What, what are your thoughts about that? What do you think they can really get up to? Uh, yeah, I think tenth is the worst possible scenario for the Blazers. I think there's going to be injuries in the West. There's going to be teams that maybe aren't as good as, uh, you know, you would, you would expect them to be. I think the Blazers realistically are a seven or eight seed. And I think they are a playoff team, but a seven or eight seed in, in today's NBA is, uh, un- it's still a playing team. All right. We got John back. Here we go. Yeah, guys. I, I look, it's interesting because I, do you think seven, eight is going to be enough to capture Blazer fans interest for the year? If no. they're sitting in that position. I don't. I think Blazer fans are expecting more because every year Damian Lillard's been healthy, they've been around 45, 46, 47 wins in that four to five range. So I think if the Blazers get to seven or eight, they're in that play-in bubble or the play-in tournament, I don't think fans are going to be happy because they are going to expect more. And Dame has kind of done that where their ceiling has been that four or five seed. I just don't see that happening. This year. Don't you think this team's not done though yet? Like they don't have a backup center yet. The off season, maybe they're done this off season, but the trade deadline's still a thing. And don't you think that this is a team that has the assets? Like once the Nurkic and Simons uh, contracts are able to be traded in six months, don't you think that this I, could I feel be a like team? We've been, 
I feel like I've been waiting for this. Like <laughs> Nick Van Exel contract was expiring. <laughs> Sabonis's contract was expiring. It was a $5 million contract back in the day. Oh, what are the Blazers going to do with this contract? Like, I feel like we've been playing this game, Sean. And I, there's only two things that a franchise can sell to a fan base. It's, you know, hey, I, I can sell you that we have proof of performance. We've played in championship games or we've won championships. Or I can sell you the idea that, hey, if you're just patient, have some patience and have some hope. And the Blazers have been selling patience and hope, uh, you know, for for a couple of decades here. So I think, you know, it's I think we have a fan base that's exhausted with this with the trajectory of the of the franchise. And I think what would really invigorate this franchise was the thing that we saw pop up on the radar a couple of months ago. It was Phil Knight buying the Blazers. Did anything move the needle? better than that in the last decade for the Blazers. No, because we know what Phil Knight is going to do to be successful. We've seen it at Oregon. He's spent the money. He's put in the resources. Like, he's going to, if he does this and he wants to be the Blazers owner, he's not going to do it, you know, just halfway. He's going to go all in and be successful. So, I think as a Blazer fan, we were all on board with that because we know right now our ownership is not very good and they're not doing everything to be successful. Where if Phil Knight comes in, man, like, I don't know what they could do roster-wise right away, but I think eventually over time he's going to bring in the right pieces to do the right things. Yeah, I think it was it was the thing really that I thought invigorated and galvanized the fan base like nothing else that we have seen. We have seen Blazer fans disagree about the backcourt or whether or not Lillard and McCollum should be broken up. We've seen them debate Chauncey Billups. Can the guy coach, not coach Terry Stotts? You know, should he stick with him or not? But – uh, the thing that every Blazer fan seemed to be on board with was the idea of Phil Knight owning the Trailblazers. Like, it was the great galvanizing move that I – and I couldn't believe that almost no one was saying this is a bad idea. Like, it was the it was the one no-brainer, everybody's on board idea that has infected the fan base. And I think that's why – it's so demoralizing when Jody Allen comes out and says, oh, the team's not for sale. As we watch, you know, Paul Allen's real estate get sold and Paul Allen's yachts get sold and, Paul, you know, the estate is being liquidated. But the Blazers and the Seahawks are sitting in here, uh, these two assets, and we know they're worth billions of dollars and it's going to take time for these things to happen. But the fact that she shut that down, I mean, it, it just, it sapped the enthusiasm of the fan base. And I don't know, maybe she took it personally. Do you think she took it personally that people were excited about her selling the team? Um, I don't know that she necessarily took it personally. I think, I think she sees the money, uh, with the, with the next bar or the next TV media agreement coming up and she can see that the Blazers are going to be worth much more uh, in a couple of years. So I think she's trying to hold on to try to get as much money as possible. I don't know that she necessarily cares about people just not liking her. If that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. in uh, and Burt Cold is interesting because, I think the minute that the Blazers are sold, he goes back to being nobody. Like, he's irrelevant. And I think there's part of him that probably loves the idea that he's got his hands involved in a NBA franchise and, to some respect, an NFL franchise. And, you know, I've never been in that position. Maybe it's intoxicating. But the minute that the Blazers are sold, nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to ask his opinion. Nobody's going to be engaged with what this, what, you know, what does he think of the NBA or whatnot. So I think there's part of it that it's a vanity play for him. And I think, you know, there's probably, he's probably clinging, clinging to this franchise a little bit um, and, and trying to uh, hold on a little too hard. No, I think you're definitely right. And I mean, when Phil Knight was rumored to be, you know, we made that offer and he was going to, you know, making that move, 
it, on all the TV stations, all the radio stations, it was Jody Allen and Burt Cold, right? And so he's hearing his name, like you said, and he probably loves it. And I understand that. It would be pretty cool uh, to kind of try to get out of the Paul Allen shadow. It's like, you know what? This is my thing now, even though it's really not his thing, but like he's hearing his name as a part of like a big deal. So I think you could be right on that. It's fascinating to watch. Uh, big development coming down the pipeline in the Pac-12. These media rights uh, negotiations are, are ramping up. We'll talk about it coming up. You got the BFT. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up in Portland on 750 The Game, talk Timbers. You into the Timbers? Timbers making a uh, making a run here. Sean, Stephen, Timbers, uh, what's the upside? What's the ceiling for them this season? We were just talking about the Timbers, Stephen and I, uh, because the MLS All-Star game is on on our screen, and we were like, do the Timbers have any All-Stars? And uh, I guess they do not. They have zero All-Stars, but they've gone 10 straight unbeaten. They're currently the seventh best team in the Western Conference. I'm not uh, I'm not huge in the soccer. I'm not huge in the MLS, but I... You know, it's a part of my job here. I'm a part of every broadcast here uh, for 750. So I've kind of gotten to know the team a little bit. And they're certainly hot right now. And they're kind of, uh, sounds like they're peaking at the right time. Playoffs are coming soon. Yeah, I got my soccer guy, DC. He That's my soccer guy. I always text him. He's a big Timbers guy, uh, season ticket holder. He says they are solid. They are very solid. Uh, last year, he actually had me bet on the Timbers to win the MLS Cup. Uh, at the start of the playoffs, and they were pretty big odds. They weren't expected to do much. They got to the final, but then lost yeah. to New York. So uh, he hasn't told me to make that bet this year, so I don't think the ceiling is quite uh, as high as it was maybe a season ago, John. Yeah, they got to turn some of these draws into wins, though. You know, and wh- where are they in the next, uh, after the break here, they got, you know, is it, they go in this run where it's like uh, Nashville, Dallas, Toronto, um, and, you know, they had a late, they had kind of a late season run a year ago. Can they put it back together again? That's the big question for them. Look, I'm not a big soccer guy either, but I've got pride in our region, and I like, I like when the Timbers matter. I don't mind the Timbers in the MLS Cup. I don't mind the Timbers winning it all. Like, those are fun times. I think it's great for the region when that happens. But they have to start turning some of these ties into wins, do they not? They do, and it's a great atmosphere. Providence Park, I mean, if you've never been there for a Timbers match, it is a really good atmosphere uh, a lot of fun, really loud. So, yeah, I mean, they got to turn them into wins. I mean, especially with, especially the home games, right? That's what you always think about, especially even, like, college football. Well, who are the teams playing at home instead of the road? When Portland's playing at home, you got to get those wins. When you're on the road, that's okay to get the draw, get the tie. But, you know, those three, the three points when you get them home is way big. Did you, did you see their last game, John? No. So, it was 0-0 for 94 minutes. The Timbers scored a PK in the 94th minute. But then uh, the ref let them kept keep playing because I guess there was more stoppage during stopping to- stoppage time. And then in the 98th minute, there was an own goal by the Timbers, Diego Chara, and it was 1-1. It was literally the last touch of the game, an own goal, and it was a uh, 1-1 tie. That's terrible. See, and that and look, everybody was mad at track and field during the World Championships because of the Devin Allen situation, and, you know, justifiably so. Like, there's some squirrely rules that, that give you that kind of outcome. I just hate stuff like that because – I think that's what kills you with the peripheral fans. Like, the diehard soccer fans understand it. They get it. They know it. They're smarter than us when they watch it. And they'll say, hey, yeah, you know, these things work out over time and whatnot. Uh, You know, they didn't get the result. But, you know, over time, the best teams rise, you know, all that stuff. 
But I think it's what kills the sport with the peripheral fan is when you get something like that that happens. Yeah, there's nothing worse than a 0-0 tie. Like, that's the thing with soccer. Like, you know, football, you know there's there's going to be some points. Basketball, you know there's going to be some points. Like, there's a chance when you watch a soccer game that it's just it's nothing for 90 minutes. That's the thing with me. I hate missing a goal in a situation like that. You look down, they score a goal, and you're like, what? I sat here for 40 minutes, I got that, and I got nothing? No so commercials, though. That's the best part. I like that. I like that. But I also think, like, you know, I when they go into stoppage time, like, you know, does it bother you that it feels so arbitrary? <laughs> it like, does. It's subjective. The ref can the ref, blow the yeah. whistle at any time, <laughs> and that's what killed the Timbers the other night. Like there was, it, there was a chance that that game could have been over, but the ref just kind of let them keep playing. I don't like that because I'm watching that referee. He's busy. Like you know, how on it is he? That's a hard job. He's, he's down there. Everybody's bitching at him. Both teams are belly flopping, pretending like they're hurt. That's another you know? thing. Yeah. And and then he's running around. He's looking at his watch. You know, every few minutes he looks down at his watch. And I keep I keep thinking like, how scientific is that? Like, shouldn't it be somebody's job in the press box to actually be counting stoppage time? Like, and and it shouldn't it go on. Like, shouldn't everyone in the stadium? And all players at all times know how much stoppage time is coming. It should be, right? I mean, technology has come across where we have uh, stopwatches. We can tell time and how far we've been in time. But I you know, I have a hot take here, John. You mentioned the flopping. I don't have a problem with flopping in soccer. I've noticed that they flop just to get the calls. And all I think in all sports, people do this. I don't think it's mm. just soccer. When they're actually hurt, they, they, they leave the field. They don't even play. They're just trying to get the call. So I actually don't have a problem with flopping. It's more the facial expressions and the rolling around. I mean, have you ever seen Draymond Green play basketball? Have you seen his facial expressions? You ever seen LeBron's facial expressions? Same things. We have three daughters, and so I'm used to seeing flopping, right? You know, (laughs) they run into the room. Oh, so-and-so hit me. She hit me first. I feel like I'm a soccer official in that that scenario. (laughs) But, yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, you're trying to influence calls. Happens in baseball, happens in the NFL. I've watched coaches. I've been down on the field in college games and watched the way the coaches kind of work the uh, referees in the pregame. Yeah. They'll come up to them and they'll say, hey, you really you really screwed us last game. And, and look, I'm not holding it personal against you, but you got to watch the holding calls today. And then and then they continue. They'll continue to bark at that official all game. They're holding. They're holding. And, and then all of a sudden they'll get a call. They'll get a holding call. Later in the game, and you're like, you know what? That coach did that. That coach got the official to look for the call and make the call. And so I understand what you're saying. I don't like how over the top it is because they roll around and they're holding their knee like they're dead. And I, and the first couple of times, if you haven't been to a game, you are like, oh, my gosh, that guy's going to – like they're going to need a stretcher. Get the ambulance ready. Yeah, get him – you know, and, and so like maybe what they should do – you know, they shouldn't – because it's so hard to penalize people, but – if you fall down and you roll around like that, they should have to perform a surgery on you on the sideline. <laughs> like there should be somebody go, you know what? That that looks like a surgery. So yeah, cut. We got to cut the knee open. Sorry. And the guy's like, no, no, no. I was just flopping. Not too bad. You you acted like you were dead out there. We need to get in there and find out what's going on. Yeah, we need like an X-ray machine where you can just bring it on the field and you can determine. Oh nope, fake. You get a yellow card. But I mean, the almighty Derek Jeter. I mean, I remember back in the day, he faked a faked it where the ball hit the the knob of the bat, and he acted yeah. like it hit him in the hand. And he's like, "Oh, it hurts. I'm going to first. And then his replay, no, you know. So I, it yeah. happens everywhere. I think everyone. Do you have just, respect for that or no? Lack of respect or more respect? I uh, I have respect for it. I don't. 
I do. I don't want I, those guys flopping around. I mean, I, you know, I played small college basketball. I <laughs> definitely tried to get calls by falling and flopping, <laughs> flopping my way in there. Because I wasn't Look. the quickest guy. I was quick, but I like to use my body. And so I'm throwing my body at people. So I, I respect it. It's one of the beefs I have with the NBA game is, you know, I don't mind a little bit of, you know, acting. Okay? I don't mind it. We all do it. But I don't like the bitching at the officials after every possession. I agree that, with you. You know what I mean? That little, like, one guy's barking, the ball's going up the other field and, you know, up the up the court, you know, in the opposite direction. And, some you know, somebody's having a conversation with the official. Like, just keep playing, man. And, by the way, what happens in a pickup game? Have you played pickup basketball lately if somebody starts flopping around? They, you just don't get calls. I so, <laughs> when, so when I played competitive basketball, I had a rule for myself. I would never call a foul for myself because I didn't want to start any fights. And I'm like, you know what? I just need to be tougher. And so I feel like the NBA guys need to have that a little bit because I'm with you. I mean, I love Luka Doncic. I think he's probably the second best player in the NBA, but he will not get back on defense. He argues with calls and doesn't get back on D, and that hurts your team. So I don't like that. Yeah, I don't respect that or like that either. And I feel the same way. Like, I wasn't good enough as a pickup basketball player to get calls, so I would just go in there out of control flying around and – you know, I'm okay if you slap me on the wrist. It is not going to affect my shot. Yes, like, play on, play on. Let's yeah, go. play. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. But I think, yeah, I think more people respect respect that. But I also found people got out of my way, guys. Like, you know, because I would just I would barrel down the lane and I, I wasn't stopping. So who's going to want to get in front of that freight train? Yeah, take, who's like, taking charges and pick a ball? No, yeah, nobody's going to be the real weirdos. <laughs> nobody's going to be done. the guy in the headband with the goggles is the guy taking the charge. He's got his he's warm up. There. He's out there he's, stretching. He's layup there. line. I love that. Um, you know, in, in the NFL, they do it too, though. You see guys on pass interference calls that will try to draw, draw a call. You'll see – I think you have seen some cases where quarterbacks, maybe they don't get hit that hard, but they try to sell a roughing the passer call. It, they call it gamesmanship there. In, in other sports, we call it bad sportsmanship. So I think it's a fine line between those two things. Yeah, Tom Brady does it a lot. In Portland, coming up uh, on 750 the game, you got Talk Timbers. If you're listening to Fox Sports Eugene and 10.50 a.m., you want to leave it locked in. Always great content uh, into the evenings on Fox Sports Eugene. Same in Klamath Falls on 9.60 a.m. and in Roseburg on 14.90 a.m. And if you're listening to the podcast, give us a rating. Give us some feedback. Share the podcast liberally. Tomorrow on the show, Tom Wistersill, the Big Sky Commissioner, Conference Commissioner. Uh, we also, uh, guys, just just in... Uh, coming up later this week, uh, we are going to have Chase Coda on the show. So he will be with us, Oregon uh, football player. So catch you tomorrow.